Agent of the Imperium, A Story of the Traveler Universe Written by Mark Miller Narrated by Mark Miller With Darlene Miller as Anna The Worlds of the Imperium The worlds of the Imperium, as well as those beyond its borders, are identified by location, name, and a brief recapitulation of their physical and social characteristics in the standard format. Sector name, coordinates, world name, starport, size, atmosphere, hydrographics, population, government, law level, dash, tech level, and a variety of remarks. Sector is the four-letter sector name abbreviation. XXYY is the star chart locational coordinates. And world name is the common label applied to the main world, the most significant world, in the stellar system at this location. Starport is the starport type. Size is world size. Atmosphere is a code for atmosphere. And hydrographics is the rough percentage in tens of surface covered with water or perhaps fluids. Population is Sofont population as a power of 10. Government is the code for government type from a standard list. And law level is the code for the local legal system on a permissive oppressive spectrum. Tech level is a code for available technology on a standard scale. A variety of remarks identify commonly encountered trade classifications and world characteristics. Rich world, agricultural, industrial, poor, local capital, sector capital, and imperial capital. The thoroughness of the remarks listed varies. Values greater than 9 are represented by hexadecimal numbers. A equals 10, B equals 11, through F equals 15. When required, correspondingly higher values use successive letters of the Anglic alphabet, but omit I and O to avoid confusion. For example, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586A98-D, High Population World, Imperial Capital. Capital is located in Core Sector at coordinates 2118. It has A, an excellent quality starport. Capital is 5, a medium-sized planet. 8, with a dense atmosphere of standard gas mixture. And 6, seas covering 60% of its surface. A, it has a population in the tens of billions. 9, governed by an impersonal bureaucracy. 8, with strict laws abridging personal freedoms in order to reduce conflicts. D. Available technology is among the best in the Imperium. Remarks indicate that the world is high population and the Imperial capital. The Imperial Calendar The Empire, variously called Zero Circa, the re-established Grand Empire of the Stars, the Third Imperium, the Imperium, the Empire, or simply the Empire, was re-established as the interstellar community in this particular region emerged from the thousand-year long night. The imperial calendar takes as its reference point the day and year in which the imperium was declared, the first day of year zero. Dates are expressed as a three-digit day followed by a three-digit year. The imperium was declared in 001-000. The day is often omitted in a year reference, and Guistus became 8th emperor 
in 326. Dates before the year zero are negatives. The first imperium fell in minus 2204. Cleon Junastu was born in minus 57. For finer detail, time on a 24-hour clock may be prefixed followed by a space. 0000-001-000 is beginning midnight of the first day of the calendar. 0800-045-123 is the eighth hour of a specific morning. 200-045-123 is the twentieth hour of the same day. Subtract 12 to convert to traditional clock time. Local star or sun-oriented times may vary. Maror It is important to establish dominance immediately upon awakening. The first ten minutes are crucial. Quarantine Manual 109-350 Aboard BB Iconel Orbiting Core 0707 Maror B694987-9 High Population World Industrial World Satellite Tundra I was awake my eyes closed, standing rather than reclining, and so I knew that this must be the start of a new activation. The wave of disorientation passed, and I opened my eyes. Before me was an expansive bridge, the transpects allowing me to see the curve of a world below. Twenty or so officers and spacers all stood at a respectful distance, waiting for me to begin, wondering what I was going to do. Who here is senior? I am. Admiral Gonchen, we have... Who is the senior Marine? Me, Sergeant Major Jocelyn. Come here. Jocelyn took a few steps forward. I need a mirror. Jocelyn turned and directed. Dinsha, run to your locker and bring us a mirror. One of the Marines dashed off. Show me your comm. The screen was unfamiliar to me. Activate it. I now took it and selected a familiar double-eye icon and felt it click. As this happened, I spoke to the group in general. Who's the briefer? I am. Commander Arlian Huffler, Sensops. Please stay your briefing until I am ready. It will be a moment. I now examined the unfamiliar image. A young, reasonably handsome naval officer. Brown eyes, brown hair, tall. A strange line to his chin. Perhaps Castledan? No, not tall enough. No matter. The pips on his collar said I was a naval sub-lieutenant. I returned the comm to the sergeant major. Thank you. The admiral now spoke, his tone betraying his impatience. We have activated you so that you may advise us on our current situation. Commander Huffler, you may begin. While he conveyed impatience, I suppressed my own feelings of annoyance. As a real-time image of the world below appeared on the screen, the briefer began conveying information. Maurer, core sector, 0707. Marur is a cold, medium-sized, far satellite on the outer fringe of the habitable zone, with a diameter of 9,880 kilometers and a circumference of 31,030 kilometers. It has a dense atmosphere, with a tainted exotic gas mixture and a pressure of 200 kilopascals. I interrupted. Skip the planetology and fast forward to the statement of danger. The screen changed to a display in a standard format as the briefer continued his narrative essentially reading and elaborating on screen text. The headline was Danger 10. Someone, or some committee, or some computer, 
had evaluated this problem as potentially reaching the whole of the world below. There followed a less than brief statement of the problem, a mass of gray text in small type. The image confirmed what the briefer was saying in far too many words. Now show the statement of the threat. The new screen was headlined Threat 6. Perhaps a hundred thousand actors, apparently very determined parasites of some sort, codes said they were confined to the northern continent, with some reports of presence elsewhere. There was an obscure code appended to the report. The parasite hijacked the host's consciousness and intelligence. They were able to act in concert. Even one or two on a ship out of the system would be disastrous. How could anyone not see the depth of the danger? Show the risk assessment. The screen changed again. Three numbers, four, four, and zero, adding to a larger eight. They were all subjective. How probable, how severe, how imminent the danger was. The action point was usually nine or ten. Images changed, and the briefer droned on about resources, activating protocols for containment, provisions for contingencies, anticipated exceptions, and a timeline for completion. From the corner of my eye, I saw the Marine appear at the entrance to the bridge, genuflect perfunctorily at the captain's chair, and stepped forward to the sergeant major with a mirror, who took it and passed it on to me. I motioned to the briefer. Pause, please. The reflection confirmed what I had seen in the comm, and I moved it around to see more detail at different angles. Why am I in this specific host? I was curious why he, I, was a junior lieutenant. The admiral spoke. You overlay sub-lieutenant Patel. Our report to sector generated an internal interim requirement to activate quarantine. How many volunteered? Patel. Anyone else? I didn't think we needed more than one volunteer. Have you stopped traffic in and out of the system, on and off world? There isn't a need yet. We're monitoring traffic. Admiral, if there's some reason you have not yet shut this system down, the threat is contained on the northern continent. You were activated as a precaution. We have the situation in hand. I unconsciously raised my hand in a pause gesture and turned my attention to Jocelyn. Sergeant Major, do you know me? Personally? Casually, sir. Who am I? Sir, you are Sub-Lieutenant Patel. Supply officer, you have been here for about five months, sir. Am I any good? Sir? Your experience with Patel, is he any good? Average. Good at PT and sports. A little slower than some at assertiveness. I need a sidearm. Make that two, one non-lethal. Are these your men? A couple are women, sir. Yes, arm them lethal non-lethal as well. You are under my command. I also need a flight jacket. Make it say agent on the back over the Imperial Seal. Yes, sir. The sergeant major turned and gestured to several troopers. Agent, you will address your comments to me and show some respect. I recognize that you may be momentarily disoriented, but I won't warn you twice. Admiral, have you read Imperial Edict 97? I have. Do you understand it? Certainly. Tell me in a sentence what it says. You are impertinent. You are activated as a quarantine agent to advise us on the current danger and threat levels. Sergeant Major, have you read Imperial Edict 97? Yes, sir. The Admiral interrupted. 
Agent, you will stand silent. I ignored him. Sergeant Major, do you understand it? Certainly. Tell me what it says. Jocelyn recited wrote. It requires assistance. He hesitated. Restated. Unlimited assistance to the holders of specific documents, written, oral, or electronic, without regard to rank, privilege, station, protocol, or security. Holders are the equivalent of the emperor himself. Am I a holder under the edict? Yes, sir, you are. Two marines stepped forward with a jacket and a weapons belt with two holsters. The rough red handle is lethal, sir. The yellow smooth is non-lethal. I took the flight jacket, looked at the back to check the markings. It said agent in thick black marker. I had sometimes seen it spelled A-J-E-N-T. I reached to my collar and removed my rank pips, then put them on the jacket. The weapons belt strapped on easily. Are the recorders on? A nod from Sergeant Major said they were. Who's Captain? This is my ship. I am Captain Argent. Suspend all traffic. No liftoffs, no landings. Divert incoming traffic to the outer system at the very least. Allow no jumps for any ship that has been on planet in the past seven days. The Admiral intervened. My patience is at an end. Security, take that man off the bridge. And then, Patel, whoever you are, you will be silent. I spoke to the Sergeant Major directly. Shoot him. Sir, in the knee, shut him up. We all heard one shot. The Admiral dropped to the deck, howling, spewing a variety of ill-chosen words. I raised my voice for all to hear. I am Agent Patel of the Quarantine. I act under Imperial Edict 97. Imminence is advanced to now. This situation has escalated to risk 14. Comms, call up the edict file and make sure it's recording. Captain, get started on my orders. Sergeant Major, take the Admiral to his quarters. An hour later, I visited the Admiral in his suite. The Sergeant Major dismissed the medic tending to the wounded leg. Get out! Get out! Calmly, ignoring the outburst, Admiral, why did you select Sub-Lieutenant Patel? What? You shot me. I'll have your head. Answer my question. You're crazy. This is impossible. Intolerable. Do I need to kneecap your other? Sergeant Major, do something. But he didn't. Deliberately. Answer my question. With a hand on the red grip of my lethal option. You, Patel, was available. The crisis already needed every available resource. And then in the middle of it all, the stupid computer required we activate a quarantine wafer. It gave a list of wafer slots, and I picked you. Patel, you have no wafer slots on your staff? I needed them for the crisis. We could do without a supply officer for a week. Your petty officer can handle things. Your staff gave no objections. My staff does not object to clearly logical conclusions. Do you have a wafer, Jack? Certainly not. I see. I turned to leave and spoke to the air. Fit him with a wafer, Jack. Admiral, now Agent Ganshin, stood on the bridge before his staff, stiffly, his legs still healing. I am Agent Ganshin of the Quarantine. I act under Imperial Edict 97. Let's get to work. 034-336, Core 2118, Capital A586A98-D, 
high population, imperial capital. I worked in an obscure office in the Ministry of State. After a basic education and a fairly ordinary university degree, I spent a term in the Imperial Star Marines. That may sound romantic, and it certainly sounds active, but in reality it was mundanely bureaucratic. My comrades wear their battle scars proudly, and they display their particular badges of service that tell those who recognize them that N fought in the assault on Greer, or that Ankh served with the Emperor's own Imperial Guard. If I had such a badge, if there were such a badge, it would say that I served at the scheduling desk of Imperial Reaction Force Zala, deciding which regiment would interact with what world at when point in time. I learned valuable lessons that have served me all of my life, but they are not the stuff of stories that entertain friends. As my term of service neared its end, one of the offices with which I worked invited me to interview. Although initially I had dreams of travel with one of the mega-corporations, in the end I received rather few offers in response to my inquiries, and so I visited with the Office of Appeals at the Imperial Quarantine Agency. They liked my answers to their questions. They confirmed I was suitable because they had direct access to all of my Marine Service records. They offered me a job doing much what I had been doing in the Marines, albeit with more money. At the time, the quarantine was a semi-autonomous force within the Imperial Navy. Fully a tenth of the Navy's fighting ships carried the mission modifier Q, crewed by quarantine officers, trained in quarantine doctrine and policy, and dedicated to protecting the Empire from the strange and deadly threats that the universe creates from time to time. It became clear to me that the Navy disliked the quarantine for reasons too many to list. From the inside, I heard the justifications for quarantine's existence and structure, and I adopted them as my own, partly because they made sense, partly because they supported the existence of my own employment, and partly because I never looked deeper into the controversy. The Office of Appeals, my particular assignment, was an obscure component of the far larger quarantine agency. Once a world was quarantined, many interests arose. Business, noble, economic, political, family, ancestral, moral, civil, scientific, cultural. All of those concerned registered their objections or affirmations to be heard by an agency magistrate who had the theoretical power to change the designation. The process took years, decades, even centuries. Appeals covered not only the current designations, but also labels applied long, long ago. A smooth-running bureaucracy needs an institutional memory to ensure its decisions are both correct and consistent. It fell to me to maintain that memory, some of it in the computer, some of it in my brain. I spent my entire adult life dedicated to my particular part of the overall whole. I began as a lowly clerk and steadily rose up the bureaucratic ladder. Senior clerk, supervisor, senior supervisor, assistant manager, manager, senior manager, and ultimately assistant director for appeals reporting to the director himself. Since the director changed with the whims of the faction currently in power, I was effectively in charge of my own petty empire. I enjoyed my life and my job. I was good at it. I could even say that I loved it. It all changed in an instant.
At my annual physical, the doctor told me I had incurable terminal cerebral degeneration. I would be dead within five years. There was no hope. This was a particular area of medical science for which there had been little progress made and little knowledge gained. He said I had time to get my affairs in order. Plenty of time, actually. I could expect a good year or two, and then an inevitable decline. When I arrived at work the next day, my console showed a new meeting flag. The director himself wanted to see me later that day. The quarantine agency has a bifurcated control structure. The ships in the fleet are commanded by quarantine officers with a rank structure parallel to the Imperial Navy. Lieutenants, commanders, captains, and admirals. The titles are the same. The loyalties merely reach the emperor along slightly different paths. The administrative structure, on the other hand, consisted of several offices, personnel, research, training, appeals, plus a few others. The current director of the quarantine agency was Lord Nam Ankuga, Count Maishar, a tall, red-haired politician installed as director when the Orange Party became ascendant in the moot some six years before. As his assistant ushered me in, the Count rose and offered me a seat at the same time telling me how sorry he was to hear of my diagnosis and prognosis. After some awkward comments, he came to his agenda item. Jonathan. The downturn is taking its toll on the economy. He paused. I was sure at that moment that they were going to cast me aside without a thought, and he saw that in my face. No, Jonathan, your retirement is secure. Your support package is substantial. You have no worries, except, of course, for your prognosis. This is something different. He called up a display with some graphic quantity charts and started to explain them. The capital ship hulls of the fleet are nearing the end of their design life. Our quarantine ships are doing only little better. He explained that the tension between the Navy and the quarantine had come to a head, that a shipbuilding budget that would stoke the economy was being considered that powerful political figures did not see the need for devoting a tenth of the fleet to Q-mission ships. Their solution is simple, so they say. Make all ships Navy. In quarantine emergencies, give temporary situational command to a designated quarantine officer with full authority to do anything required. The Emperor, Anguistus himself, backs this plan. As part of me listened to this disclosure of the inner policy workings of the imperial bureaucracy, I wondered why I was being told these details, even as my tenure with the agency was coming to an end. The Count continued with a few more comments, and then made his proposal. Jonathan, you know as much about this agency as anyone. You know our procedures, our policies. You know how important the right decisions are. You know the devastation that can follow a wrong decision. More than that, you've seen the right decisions being made, the wrong decisions being avoided. We have a process that can capture all of that knowledge and use it to enable our quarantine agents in the field under this new scheme. He leaned forward. We can capture your personality and implant it temporarily in a naval officer to manage quarantine emergencies. With all of your knowledge and experience, it is a better solution than training officers for situations they may never face. But there is a problem. The scanning is destructive. You will die in the process. 110-350, aboard BB Iconel orbiting Core 0707 Maurer, B694987-9, 
high-population world, industrial world, satellite, tundra. Time was important. The operation needed to start even as I scheduled planning sessions. I called up console imagery myself because I knew what I wanted to know. It took less than minutes. I turned to the assembled staff officers. Intel. Yes, agent. Go over the details of this world. He tapped his controller and the screen in front of me brightened. Titles appeared. Maurer, Core 0707, B694987-9. The officer decoded it aloud. Moderate size, tainted dense atmosphere, less than average water, billions of people, bureaucratic government, reasonable law, comfortable tech, although it lags the mainstream. He tapped again and a new screen appeared. These codes were more dense. Eight billion people. A third are mostly Volani dating from the third millennium. The rest are indigenes, shingons, bilateral bipeds about as far from the human template as they can get. Hairy exoskeletons, graspers instead of hands. It's an industrial world. That explains some of the taint in the atmosphere. Satellite of a gas giant. Cold. A lot of the terrain is marked tundral, thus short growing seasons. Apparently much of the food comes from vats. Wait. I had a habit of raising my hand to pause an interaction. Personnel. Yes, agent. This was an older human woman. Do we have any Shingons or Marurans with us? No, agent. I was relieved. One less issue to deal with. Back to Intel. Get me a census of who is on the high port. I work by heuristics. Close enough without spending a lot of time on it. Barring problems, my ships could get anywhere in the system in a day. They could start crafting kinetics in a day. The kinetics could start hitting in a day. Operations? A tall castle, Dan. That description is redundant. They are all tall. Responded. Yes, agent. Put three of the capitals in equidistant stationary orbit. Dispatch the other two as siege engines to the planetoid belt. Get some pickets there at high speed to help locate what they will need. Put marines in place on the high port control center. Am I being redundant? I want this world on interdeck. No one, nothing, in or out. Cut comms and links. How long? Yes, sir. Interdeck is already in place. Four hours for the high port operation. Come back to me before you execute. My knee hurt. There was a stab of pain. Medical. Get me a pain pill. I didn't wait for a reply. Logistics? Yes, agent. The siege engines will start building kinetics tomorrow. Are they properly stocked? Tell me the foreseeables. The critical path constricts on flash chips. Everything else can be lasered and makered. They did an exercise last season with excellent results. The chip stockpile is full. That's just a commodity. We have more than enough. Confirm all that and come back to me with specific numbers. I turned to the captain. It was time for some semblance of social connection. Captain, you have an excellent crew. Everything I see is competent. I commend you. Since I was speaking with the voice of the Emperor, I hoped this would keep him in check. Thank you, sir. My duty is to serve the Empire. What else could he say? I talked to various officers until operations and personnel came back. Sensor protocols. Competencies. Exception responses. Morale. Notifications to sector flag. Agent. Personnel waited for me to respond. Yes. Highport has 1,300 personnel. Half are transients, passengers, crew. The rest are staff, clerks, functionaries. 
How many are Shingons? She looked down. A third? She didn't see where I was going, and I had to ask gender proportion. Seventy-thirty. That was consistent with the Sofont gender census. What ships are in port? Just four, not counting us, of course. A jump liner, three traders. I touched a nearby console and asked it for similar worlds nearby. It showed graphics which I tapped. 1901 Zanin had room. 2624 Idis was a hell world, so no. 0302 Com was close, empty, and similar. It could actually use some people. Tell the Marines I want every Maruran, my mouth twisted on the word, Shingen, human, whatever, on that jump liner bound for calm. Brook no questions, but use non-lethal force. I don't think they're going to understand. Set up a resettlement program for them. Activate any reservists over there and bring them on board here. Load everyone else on the traders and get them out of the system. Mark that penultimate priority. Ultimate priority would have authorized lethal force. I didn't want to lose any of them. Yes, Agent. Operations? Can the Marines handle all that? Are you ready? Yes, Agent. Then execute. I turned to my next task. Scrubbing a world takes a lot of planning, a lot of work, a lot of attention to detail. I delegated to the captain the positioning of the ships and the details of the attack. Some of the rest I delegated to my other self, Patel. I assigned tasks and responsibilities to others as well. No one person could do all that had to be done. It would be three days before the true scrubbing began, but we started immediately. We tilted Highport out of orbit to impact the largest city. The dreadnoughts emped the world from three sides, repeatedly. Civilization below evaporated. What few comms survived the emps called frantically and repeatedly. There was an instant information vacuum. Were we pirates? Invaders? Rebels? Anarchists? Luddites? Sociops? Usurpers? No one below knew, and we stood silent. Several ships tried to boost to orbit. We knocked them back. A couple of feeble grav carriers tried as well. Their efforts to climb out of the gravity well would take them hours, and we blasted them. It was a gift. Our siege engines reached the belt ahead of schedule and started work immediately. The ships extended their rail guns and prepared for a long campaign. They harvested fenny chunks, peeled them of their outer husks, then sliced them into manageable pieces. Lasers engraved them with textures to help them plunge through atmosphere. Makers processed the shucks into thrusters that they spot-welded into place. In a last step, crews swarmed over the newborn kinetics and inserted their brains, flash-programmed chips that knew where and when to strike. Then they launched. Streams of thousands followed predetermined paths. Some looped far afield to arrive later. Others proceeded more directly. We had divided Marur arbitrarily into 30,000 cells, mapped locations a 100 kilometers across. Ten waves of 3,000 kinetics were supposed to be sufficient to sterilize the world. The first wave was probably enough to kill everyone. The rest were just insurance. The first wave arrived at the end of day four. The impacts were designed to overlap. For that first wave, at least, we had to watch. We couldn't not. The brownish globe that was Marur hung before us, bright in sunlight, part cloaked in shadow. 
SenseOps was a droning background narration as we watched. The kinetics had six-digit names. She gave up reciting the entire string and gave us one- or two-digit identifiers. 4-4 to impact, now. Set 7 approaching. Group 1 impacting, now. A bloom of bright, then another, then a dozen, then a hundred, flared in the planet's night, a neatly drawn line from pole to pole. We knew without asking that the ground beneath was burning beyond recognition, that impacts were crushing everything on the surface and then fracking the bedrock, that winds and blasts were destroying all in their paths. Scattered other impacts shattered the perfection of the flowing, glowing line as stragglers hit their targets and special mission nukes seasoned the air. Com's job was to monitor. She listened to multiple pleading transmissions from below, shifting in no particular order from anger to bargaining to despair and even to acceptance. I moved to her console and put my hand on her shoulder. Turn that off. You don't need to listen anymore. One of the specialty cooks, a tripod with striped skin and booming voice, collapsed. Personnel said it was unusually sensitive to emotions. The death throes overwhelmed it, even at 50,000 kilometers. A later update told me it died. Over the next two days, there were scattered impacts, specialty target strikes, where sensors saw life or movement or emissions in various spectra. We launched ten waves of kinetics total. We hit every possible location on the world, some twice, some three times. Special targeting boiled parts of the seas and slushed hundred-meter waves across shorelines. Strikes hit fault lines and shook the continents to their very foundations. No subsurface structures could possibly survive these quakes. Repeated drops awakened volcanoes from their sleep, and they spewed out angry ash that turned the skies blacker yet. My remaining sleeps dwindled to a handful as our mission moved towards its natural end. Some of our ships would remain here for decades. I wouldn't be here to see it. I would be dead again. I addressed the ship's crews. I told them that they had served the Empire well, and that the Emperor himself would know of their service and dedication. I told them that by their service they had saved a trillion lives, and that I was proud of them. Some were moved by my words. I could see the tears in their eyes. I admit that I felt a similar pride. The Emperor had chosen me to do his will, and I had again proven myself competent. I went to sleep that night satisfied. 090-336, Core, 2118, Capital, A586A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. I arranged for my own funeral. My wife was already dead. My children long gone. I had few friends. I had poured myself into my work. For reasons I accepted but did not fully understand, my family had rejected the commonplace full cremation and adopted the custom of sampling. We, that is, my family, could point to specific stone crypts that held pieces of us going back six generations. It was a source of continuity, of comfort to us, to me. When I was dead, I would have a place with my ancestors. Keeping a whole body, however, was nonsense. Too big, too bulky. A sample was enough. Humility and family tradition dictated that it be the least significant digit of my non-dominant hand. 
I arranged for a monument in the Balanaden. That was our name before we anglicized it to Bland. Family Memorial Section in Rural Intel. The steel was black granite with swirls of gray, standing twice as tall as I, as wide as I. I eschewed any decoration. There was no one to appreciate it. Incised on its base was my name in both Anglic and Villani. Jonathan Bland, 301-227, 102-336, Bilanadan. My sample, my left little finger, suitably preserved for the ages, was to be deposited in a sept carved under the steel space. The Rules Agent Standing Orders Executive Summary Rule 1. You speak with the voice of the Emperor. Brook no resistance. Rule 2. Millions of lives depend on your actions. You may need to spend some of them in the process. Rule 3. You act through your team. Build it, quickly, by whatever means available. Rule 4. Your team is your greatest asset. Use them. Depend on them. Rule 5. You hold the ability to punish and reward. Do both. O60-336, Core 2118, Capital A586A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. We five agent personalities were trained at a secure facility some 10 kilometers beneath the surface of Capital. We already had the skills and expertise. Aptitude tests and rigorous screening had winnowed down more than 2 million potentials in the bureaucratic workforce to several thousand, then several hundred, then dozens, and finally us. Not that the analysis of the others was wasted. The process identified people with very high levels of skill in specific areas, obscure technical fields that took years of study and experience to master, bureaucratic domains that depended on an intimate knowledge of regulations and rules created over the course of centuries, even interpersonal skills that many people seem incapable of developing. For pure skill and expertise, there are other harvesting methods. Those identified as the best of the best were non-destructively scanned. Their extreme skill sets were distilled onto standardized wafers without the associated personalities and distributed widely throughout the bureaucracy and the various uniformed services and armed forces. The ship drive set enables an unskilled technician to diagnose and repair, with suitable tools and parts, the most complex of starship drives. Similar sets support vehicles, weapons, flyers, various of the hard sciences, and to a lesser extent, the soft sciences. Skill alone, of course, is never enough. The user needs an appropriate level of supporting intelligence or education. A thesaurus function may propose alternate wording. It takes intelligence to make the right choice from among many options. Using pure skill wafers is a balancing act. They provide great power, but at potentially great risk. The first question students ask is, why not just give us all wafers instead of making us slog through all this material? In the first blush of wafer implementation, the technology had proponents who advocated just that. Fit users with wafer jacks after a rudimentary and cheap education and achieve a well-trained, efficient, and effective workforce for an overall lower net cost. The problem is that wafer use naturally challenges the essential functions of the brain, 
The conflict between long-established neuron channels and the transient new knowledge has a small but significant and cumulative risk of permanent damage. Several decades previous, there had been entire sheltered care communities for those permanently impaired by skill wafer overuse. On the other hand, a starship with a crippled jump system, stranded between the stars, is often willing to risk the sanity of its drive technician if a thousand passengers and mega-credits of cargo will make it to their destination. But I digress. We were trained not in skill use but in basic principles. Our collective assignment was to use our own expertise in combination with a broad grant of power and authority to protect the Empire. Academic experts and the project leaders drafted specific guidance. We five gave our own feedback, and some of it was incorporated into the final text. Admiral and Warlord helped craft Rule 3. Negotiators suggested details for Rule 5. The text of this particular section runs 5,000 words, complete with an elenctic method question-and-answer tutorial and a variety of hypothetical examples. All of it was distilled into the less than a hundred words of the agent's standing orders. We spent two full days in exercises, discussions, and arguments. Our instructor made us memorize the executive summary until we could recite it by rote. The entire section was then classified ultimate and attached as an encrypted appendix to our enabling regulations. We five, anywhere, could always consult it with our override codes. Not that, after those sessions, we would ever need to. In my previous life, I was a bureaucrat, a functionary. I thrived on making things happen within a system. I couldn't necessarily predict what would happen next, but I could and did strive for order. I established my own particular order. When I awake, I feel a momentary wash of disorientation. So I just stand there, eyes closed, and I steady myself as I gradually mesh back into the world. I call out, Who here is senior? The answer tells me something about the situation. Anything tells me something. I call out, Who is the briefer? They activated me. There must be a reason. It follows that someone will be prepared to tell me the situation and the problem. The routine has a purpose of its own. It's the start of building my Rule 3 team with just a touch of Rule 1 authority. Arcanum Anguistus' ascent to the Iridium throne was a long time coming. He was born in the first year of his mother's reign, and the public immediately took him to their collective hearts. Prince Angin waved to the court from his mother's lap. Crowds of chroniclers followed his every move from birth to adolescence to adulthood. He visited many worlds as Mother Porphyria's proxy. His storybook wedding to Margaret of Delphi was celebrated for months after, as news and images made their way to the borders of the empire. Billions grieved with him and his bride when their firstborn died after only a few precious months. Public opinion turned against him when he and Margaret parted ways, and he took up a very public life of dissolution and extravagance. Public approval returned when he gave up those ways, reconciled with Margaret, and their second child, Martin III, was born. The public grieved again when Margaret died soon after. At age 45, Angin was given substantial responsibilities in the moot, promoting the armed forces as the guardians of imperial stability and peace. After a lifetime of cycles of trial and triumph, Prince Angin finally reached his ultimate destiny when his mother died. 
He was 80. 333-402 Aboard BKF Kobakun above Deneb Sector 2126 Arcanum B 434866-5 Pre-High Population World I stood on the bridge of the flagship of the Deneb fleet. Elements had been patrolling the system since the first reports, and now, six weeks later, the Fleet Strike Squadron was present in force. I had been activated earlier today. The briefer, a professor of planetology, sounded scared as he spoke. Maybe it was the threat level. Maybe he thought I just killed people randomly. We were in orbit above Arcanum, a poor world with a lot of people crowded into cities and towns within a few hundred kilometers of its coastlines the interiors of its six continents' impenetrable forest. The planet had no known indigenes, just humans. We could see the problem from here. As the world rotated below us, a silver dome a thousand kilometers across rose to near-world orbit. Arcanum looked out of balance, like it should wobble as it turned. A few fast communication satellites had already bumped into the dome, smashed into it. It was a stasis globe. The shiny surface was the clue. It reflected all incoming energy. The interior was frozen in a moment of time some six weeks ago. We've met people who can make stasis globes. They wouldn't sell us their machines, and we found we couldn't take them or steal them. I'm sure someone tried. The problem with stasis is that we can't turn it off. Its extinction date is inextricably set when it's created. If a specific globe is set to end in 74 years, nothing, nothing that we know of, We'll turn it off sooner. Our sensors located the epicenter, a mining site in a coastal mountain range. The effect had a radius. At a thousand kilometer diameter, we could gauge the hypocenter at about 100 kilometers below the planetary surface, deep inside the mines. We had historical information, but now deep radar couldn't penetrate the field to tell us anything more. The planetary government sent us the mining permits and documentation but they denied there was any clandestine activity at the site, as if the leaders would even know. There had been a few deaths, people catastrophically sliced when the globe went on. Some were lucky and only lost limbs. One person lost his nose. We worked on the evaluations and data analysis for a full day and quit only when the fatigue made us too wary to function. I set a renewed meeting for tomorrow. As the meeting broke up, an officer approached me. Sir, agent... Agent is the correct form of address. I looked at him. Lieutenant Gilcrest, Agent. I am a reservist, and I just happen to be assigned to the fleet this month, shadowing the intelligence officer. Can I share with you some thoughts? Why is this not part of the formal briefing? I am not part of the formal structure here, just a reservist. My job, to quote someone higher up, is to shut up and listen. I have been, but that doesn't stop me from thinking. I was skeptical. Why is your insight so much different from the others? Ah, that's the point, Agent. He pointed to a badge on his uniform, a small silver cluster with a stylized triangle. I am Psi qualified. I've been to the Psi Service Institute. In world surface life, I'm a socialization counselor in an adolescent school. I use Psi in my work. We have found that there are Psi approaches that help normalize outlier students. Fringe science, I thought hard, if not impossible, to disprove, or to prove. It flourished at the edges of real science. I was surprised that the Navy even had a size service. 
I wasn't surprised that no one would listen to him. Resisting a temptation to dismiss him abruptly, I invited him to a late meal before I quit for the night. Gilchrist told a good story. Perhaps he had also been to persuasion school. His neighborhood youth coordinator took an interest in him, exposed him to a variety of experiences. He found that he was interested in the sciences of the mind. He took several remote learning sequences, even went away for a semester to an intense immersion experience. He ended up with a second-stage certificate of completion from the local psionics institution on Thingen. I asked him if he could read minds. He laughed. They classify what I do as empathy. I can sort of sense what people are thinking, or more usually feeling, even from a distance. And I am thinking what? There's a surface skepticism. I don't blame you. But there's also a genuine interest. You want to solve this problem. Anyone could make that up. Oh, and there's something deeper that doesn't quite parse. It's like there's another part of you flailing in a pit of pitch. I don't understand what that means at all. I had not thought of where my host went when I took over. I thought he was just dormant. I pressed on. So tell me your insight about Arcanum. When we pass close to the globe, it feels like they're still there. We talked for a while. I listened to his opinions and noted his comm code. We all met the next day on the bridge. Their consensus was that we should scrub the world before this effect spread. Not that that made a lot of sense. The effect wasn't spreading. Nukes wouldn't affect stasis. Neither would kinetics, nor imps, nor high-energy projectors. It wasn't like we could hide that thing. If we scrubbed the whole world, turned the atmosphere opaque black with dusk, it would still be a silver bulb rising 300 kilometers above the clouds. Scrub this world, they said. I wasn't convinced. They located a mining engineer who had worked at the site sent out of system on a consulting assignment and only now returned after some eight months. I expected a human male. I saw before me a newt. Newts aren't mining engineers. They're coordinators and list makers. Tell me who you are. His voice squeaked. Good day, agent. I am Supervisor Patha, Tafa Patha, of Three Minco. We are a division of Nasurka. Are you aware of the situation below? In part... I have not been formally instructed. I asked the professor to repeat the latest iteration of his briefing. I signaled and someone brought Patha refreshments and a wet cloth. When the presentation was complete, Patha spoke. It appears that the hypocenter is at the Seng level of the mine, the deepest part. The other levels produce heavy metals. We process the ore in a facility near the surface. The site is unusually rich in elements that we cannot easily find in the planetoid belt. The Seng level, he stopped, thinking through his words. The Seng level is seeded with debris from a very old impact. We recover the pieces and ship them off-world for research. This cleared things up. 300,000 years ago, the ancients had fought a wide-ranging interstellar war amongst themselves, shattering worlds, destroying stars, destroying their own civilization in the process. Some of their technology was literally unimaginable. This was an ancient artifact. I jumped to that conclusion. So the Seng level dates to about 300,000 years ago? The ancient era? No, Agent. It is ten times that old. Three million years. I wiggled my fingers in battle language and the Marines started clearing the bridge. 
I kept the key staff officers only. I asked Gilchrist to stay as well. I now felt it necessary to reconfirm basic information. Has anyone touched that field? Several people lost limbs, agent. Has anyone touched that field recently? No, agent. I sent the Marines on a mission. An assault lander dropped through atmosphere in minutes, and they were adjacent to the field within two hours. I watched through a drone. At touching range, the field was a flat vertical mirror extending from the ground to the sky. It was hard to see. The optics were tricky. It was a very good mirror. 334-402 Deneb 2126 Arcanum B434866-5 Pre-High Population Imperial Star Marine Captain Eileen Vump was philosophical. Long ago she had observed that most Marines survived their enlistment and went home with a few medals and a small pension. She wasn't foolhardy, but she followed the Marine slogan, Obey. Here she was next to something that killed people. She hoped it wouldn't kill her. She had her instructions, and she was smart enough not to do some of the tasks herself. The first task was to touch the field. She told a Marine to take off his gauntlet and touch it. A stasis field reflects all energy and is impenetrable to matter. It should be neutral, not hot, not cold. The assigned Marine reached slowly forward, extended a finger, and touched the surface. Nothing, sir. It's solid. Touch harder. He leaned into it, palm flat to the mirror. It flexed slightly, and he let out a yelp. He pulled his hand away. Surface burned. Stasis fields don't do that. The observing drone told everyone to step back. They followed a new set of instructions. A flat surface pressed against the field with a force slightly greater than local gravity penetrated slightly. Temperature probes showed no observable heat effect. A long rod could be forced, with some effort, into the field. They succeeded in pushing a rod all the way in using another rod. They succeeded in fishing around with a grapple and retrieving it. They pushed in a sensor package and retrieved it. It came out inoperative. The circuits fried. They ran a series of other tests in response to instructions from above. Several of them seemed to echo the recruits' lament. Stupid, suicidal, and certainly without explanation. But like good Marines, they obeyed. Then they pushed a sensor package in and the rod came out empty. Except for a scrap of packing board scrawled with a short phrase, Help us. Fleet sent down a full-scale assault team with logistics train later that day, and they worked through the night. 101-336, CORE-2118-A586-A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. I met the Emperor himself, in his private chambers. I was giddy. He touched me with his hand and made me a knight of the Emperor's guard, with my name recorded forever in the Galadumlarg Dadaga, the great imperial archive, the records that are never erased. He spoke knowledgeably about our entire project and of his dream that it would protect the Empire. He expressed appreciation for both my sacrifice and my contribution. His words burned in my memory as he spoke. I have recalled them many times. Jonathan, your knowledge is a great asset. The safety of the Empire itself depends on your wise use of that asset. The core of your mission is to save lives. 
You will speak with my voice, and I expect that all will obey. Serve the Empire wisely. The personality harvesting process began the next day. I remember nothing after that. 335-402 Aboard BKF Kobakun, above Deneb, 2126, Arcanum, B434866-5, pre-high population. On the bridge the next day, we reviewed their findings. Later, someone would write a report, probably classified ultimate, that would make its way to capital, never to be read again. For today, we needed to decide on the answers. I led the discussion. Feedback and contradict as necessary. First, do we know who wrote that note? They haven't answered. Let me know as soon as you know. Moving on. This isn't a statusis field. It stops energy. Someone spoke up. Because it reflects light, heat, EM, just about everything they tried. But it doesn't stop matter. Someone else. It just slows it down, strips away energy above a certain level. Another. Just above the local force of gravity. So we can shove things through slowly, but the Marines tried a shot and the ricochet dented someone's chest plate. Electronics are fried when they go through, or when they come out. We aren't sure which. Probably both. That Marine's hand was burned. What was that? Not really burned. It's more complex than that. The surface layer of skin cells went into the field and didn't come out. The discussion continued. After several more circuits fried, various photon, fluidic, magnetic, and gravitic systems failed, someone tried a mechanical sensor, a clockwork thing that responded to sound and pressure. It came back with some readings engraved on soft metal. The anomaly was that time moved faster within the field. Sixty seconds out here was 247 seconds in there. One of the newts hypothesized that the outside-inside time-elapsed rate was the square root of 17, or maybe the cube root of 73, four minutes inside to one minute outside. Those inside were already 24 weeks older than us. One of the techs rigged up a mechanical linkage between the terminals inside and outside. Things went quicker after that. There was a small group of people who needed help. We could send through some foods, candles, mechanical igniters. Did I mention that it was dark? That their personal respirator batteries were wearing down? There, there was nothing we could do? The time came to decide. Not only was scrubbing not required, it was ill-advised. There was too much that we did not know about this artifact. Who made it? How? When? Are there others? Are there others outside of the current field? Whatever could create a fast-time field, is it useful? Useless? Dangerous? I declared a red zone, interdicted by naval patrols. No one could visit this world. No one could leave this world. The risk that someone would find another one of those devices was too great. Cutting off almost a billion people from interstellar commerce was an inconvenience. Some of those below might object. So might several off-world corporations with holdings on Arcadum. No matter. I already knew how the appeals process worked. It would be years before the matter came before the appeals magistrate on Capitol. Decades, even centuries, before there would be a contrary decision. This time I hadn't killed a hundred million people. Did it matter? The Dakasari Look, up there. Each of those lights is a soul. 
Some are your ancestors, rewarded for their virtue and allowed to watch us down here. Some are your unborn children, learning from our example how to live. Teach your children to be well. Make your ancestors proud. They watch us constantly and regret the errors they made in life. Dakaseri, literally, the audience of stars, a Valani word. The ancient story of meritorious souls allowed to watch the unfolding events of the world. Their discussions and their futile attempts to intervene are the basis of many Valani myths and legends. I stood with my eyes closed, drinking in what was around me. Strangeness, a slight breeze, and a murmuring of voices. I spoke. Who here is senior? And I was startled with a hand at my elbow. Jonathan, come on. The seats will all be taken. I opened my eyes. To my left and to my right, as far as I could see, were rows and rows of spectators, talking, looking, chatting, watching, gesturing, commenting on a vast field below. Our sky was steel gray, and the crowd itself extended far into the surrounding mist. My mother, youthful as I remembered her, bounced with excitement. She grabbed my hand and led me to some vacant seats. Arlene is having her baby today. The young man seated to my left interjected, I can hardly wait, then touched my arm and said, Hi, I'm Jonathan, too. I saw, more in my mind's eye than before us, my great-granddaughter Arlene, surrounded by her husband, two midwives, and their preteen two children. The excitement was infectious, for them and for us watching. The objective part of me noticed that other small groups seemed to be watching other scenes, each oblivious to all else. Abruptly, the baby appeared. My mother let out a peep of excitement. My peripheral vision noticed that the seat to my left was now vacant. They gave the newborn to Arlene, and she held him in the first moments of mother-son bonding. We'll call him Jonathan. 302-410, aboard C.B. Stalwart, above Empty Quarter, 2230, Deruca, C-574-648-5, Agricultural World, Non-Industrial World. I awoke to a chatter of voices, Sensops journaling their readings aloud a pilot narrating his control actions, a spacer repeating readings from the maneuver drives, all the common verbalizations of a functioning starship bridge. Silence came from an authoritative voice, and there was silence. I opened my eyes. Who here is senior? I am Commander Avila, commanding INS Stalwart. I could see him in the captain's chair. And who is my briefer? I am as well. There is no prepared briefing. I'll just tell you. Captain Asudi, not present, returned from a planetside call on the local Baron an hour ago, ranting about this world and insisting that it be scrubbed. He was communicating from the gig as soon as it lifted. Giving preparatory directives, he expected us to start when he arrived. I countermanded the instructions and had the captain tranked on arrival. It took two shots. Then I activated you. And dodged responsibility. I had questions. Where is Asudi now? in his quarters, sedated. I turned to the Marine Sergeant standing off to the side. Bring me a flight jacket. Mark the back with agent above the Imperial symbol and a lethal sidearm. Send two Marines to the Captain's quarters and ensure that he continues to be restrained. To the command staff in general, who else was aboard the gig from the surface? Where are they now? Yes, sir, wait one. 
I didn't want to wait at all, so I moved on to my next question. Tell me about this world. Avila pointed to an officer who rattled off what his screen told him. Deruka, 2230, in the empty quarter. C574648-5. I didn't have the tables memorized. I knew that a six in that position meant millions of people. The seven meant breathable atmosphere. The final five meant relatively low tech. That was enough. Thank you. A Marine re-entered the bridge, kind of nodded to the captain's chair, and headed toward me with a jacket and a weapons belt. At the same time, an alert sounded on one of the consoles. Two seconds later, a second alert sounded at a different console. I spent the time donning the jacket and buckling the weapons belt. By the time I was ready, there were competing voices reporting. The captain is not in his... The gig crew was a pilot and three spacers. They are... Another alarm sounded. Drive reports a power fault in three, two... It was my turn. Silence. And there was quiet. Then the lights went out. For a moment, we were lit only by the glow of Daruka through the transpects. Then the emergency backups brought up a standard level of illumination. I always have trouble just observing, so I started asking questions to which I needed answers. Where is the captain? The spacer at a console spoke up tentatively. Agent? Just tell us. Don't stand on protocol. He's not in his suite. The Marines checked and reported. Find out where he is. Interrupt me when you know. What happened to the power? Who narrated that report? A rating spoke. I did, sir. The second engineer was reporting status when the telltales went wild. Find out why. Tell me when you know. You, what's your name? Lieutenant Nugent, sir. Yes. Find out where the gig pilot and crew are. Lock us down at the bulkheads. Let's find out what's going on. Agent, the captain is in the drive room. He just told the engineer to shut down power. Can you override him? The deck started to hum beneath my feet. The grav plates quit. Those quick enough grabbed handholds to steady themselves. A few started to float, only to be steadied by their companions. I pulled myself toward a console pair and its crew persons. To the first, prepare to transfer total control to this console. He objected that it would need authorizations. I waved him silent. I looked at the console for today's date and made some mental adjustments. Calculate 521 to the 413 power. Show me the first ten digits. The first interrupted. It's locked. It needs an override. I reached over and touched numbers quickly. There. Now lock down everywhere. Disable all consoles until they get the clear from me here. Start with your neighbors. And get gravity back. But warn us first. I swam toward the captain's chair. Commander, I now have command. He was out of it before I arrived. He was uncomfortable. Wider than I expected. Deeper. My expectations had misled me. Commander? Agent? Is Captain Usudi human? Non-human crew are not unusual. I had just assumed there were none, or that they had marginal positions. The captain, the gig crew, and the pilot were all plexons, near enough to human, two legs, two arms, a head, but with a strange metabolism, and an added awareness sense that saw fields and auras that humans can't. Who else is Plexon? Commander Avila volunteered. Half the drive techs, a few gunners, maybe twenty total. Who else is non-human? One of the gunners is a Varger. No one else. I wanted to think, but there didn't seem to be time. 
console operators began verbalizing their reports as their panels reawakened. I was missing something that I needed to know. You, I pointed to a sensop. Tell me the second screen details of this world. He started listing seemingly random details. An agricultural world with some cultural inefficiencies that tamped down technology. An anomalous rating on the cultural strangeness scale. A Plexan noble and a significant Plexan population. Find out what happened with the captain when he was down below. I wanted to see for myself. I instructed a tech to give me passage through locked bulkheads. Then I gave the bridge back to Avila and told two marines to follow me. Actually, I had one lead to the drive compartment. They insisted on advancing with drawn weapons and seemed to work efficiently together. In less than five minutes, we were before the massive blast doors that separated the main corridor from the complex of drive mechanisms. The first marine moved me aside, out of any line of fire, and then cautiously touched a panel to force it open. The large doors slid aside. Ten bodies, plexins, lay before us. From shelter, I called out, Weapons down! Come out! From within, I am unarmed. Drive Tech Jixson. I'm coming. Me too. Spacer Voss. As they exited, the Marines made them lay on the deck to be searched. Is there anyone else? No, sir. Just the captain there and the techs. He pointed to the bodies. I stepped closer, and as I did, one of them moved. The Marine on my left shot it twice, and it stopped moving. Carefully, my companions poked the remaining bodies, but they failed to react. I addressed the drive tech. Where are the other plexins? These are them, all of them. What happened? Voss gave a brief narrative, telling how the captain appeared and gestured wildly as the plexins in the compartment gathered around him. They all gestured back and then scattered to their consoles and started shutting down power. In the middle of it all, I stopped. This all made no sense. It was like a detective story without any clues. I had no understanding at all of what was happening. Voss' narrative continued in the background until I interrupted. To the lead Marine, take us back to the bridge. I had been violating Rule 4. It was not my task to investigate. There were others to handle that. As I re-entered the bridge, I was greeted by a cacophony as several spacers each spoke with vital information. It was impossible to understand them all at once. I raised an arm for silence. We don't have a complete understanding of events here. I looked to the clerk closest to me. What is my surname? Noranda. Lieutenant Inch Noranda, sir. I am Agent Noranda of the Quarantine. My authority is Imperial Edict 97. I speak with the voice of the Emperor himself. The system is provisionally zone red. No one leaves the world below. Ultimate priority. Implement that now. Full communications lockdown. Confirm everything through me first. Tell me immediately of any activity below. In the days that followed, reports and censors confirmed that plexons on the world below now behaved in a range from peculiar to insane. We dedicated almost all of our resources to determining why, and we were universally unsuccessful. We eliminated contagion and environmental elements almost immediately. The crew worked tirelessly to find answers, and they came up empty. Shortly before my time expired, the first reinforcement ships arrived. Their resources were also insufficient to puzzle out the cause of this crisis. In time, 
Perhaps someone would know root causes and perhaps general cures. Then again, there are some questions for which we can never find answers. Core Word of the Imperium The essential strategy of the early empire was expansion. The fallow worlds of the long night were ready for recontact and redevelopment, waiting only for the proper seed and season. Alas, the few dozens of worlds that Cleon I ruled faced a formidable challenge in reabsorbing the ten thousand worlds that were once the First Empire. When the long night fell, worlds naturally fell back on their native energy sources, animal power, fossil fuels, renewables. High-tech worlds embraced the risks of fission systems. Still higher tech depended on fusion. Neither fission nor fusion was portable. Installations were the size of villages, and every city required at least one. Leon's secret was Fusion Plus, a radical paradigm shift that provided cheap, portable energy. It took some sparks of genius, imagination, and craziness to even pursue the concept. When it was perfected in minus 20, it revolutionized the dozen worlds of the Silean Federation. Vehicles could run essentially forever on cups of water. Houses could disconnect from the grid. Factories could locate near resources rather than near energy. Power became too cheap to meter and it did not require a distribution network. Productivity skyrocketed. Prosperity arrived and seemed to never want to leave, except, of course, for the energy and power grid companies. It was this booming economy that created the Third Imperium and its expansionist policies. Yet even this economic powerhouse could not reabsorb the 10,000 worlds of the old empire in a few dozen years. Power vacuums and rival empires seemed inevitable, and every rival that arose would constrict future growth. It was Cleon's business genius that solved the problem. Cleon would gift some trader a hold full of fusion modules and send him out into the wilds. The trader would ultimately arrive at a ripe world with a hold full of modules. He sold perhaps a few. He gave away a few more. But ultimately the strategy was to lease them, for oaths of fealty. Leon's gift included a maker shop with templates that could make more and a monopoly on free power. After a few years, the trader and his family were at the top of the local power pyramid. In a century or two... When the expanding empire finally reached this booming system, Cleon's markers for his gift came due. The trader's family now owed fealty to the empire. There were always some who thought just taking the modules would be easier. It would have been stupid not to prepare for such an eventuality. Deep within every Fusion Plus were multiple layers of concealed encrypted control systems. They determined efficiency. They prevented misuse. They could trigger early shutdown, or even explosive self-destructs. Many a powerful family knew that the key to its power was the secret control codes for its maker shop and its output. 320-434, aboard ISS Talon, orbiting Kaysen Sector, 0914, Bonacher, C-8858, unknown, unknown, dash 4. Garden World, Pre-High Population I awoke to the common sounds of a starship bridge. I had heard them many times before, and they were a comfort, a familiarity. Who here is senior? 
Captain Tryon, ISS Talon. A scout service ship? And who is the briefer? I will handle that as well. The voice conveyed self-assurance. I opened my eyes to see a variety of officers busy at their consoles. Outside the transpects, at some distance, hung the bright half of a planet against the stars. Very well. The captain began without supporting images. This Talon was eight years out on a twenty-year mission coward of the Imperial borders, generally to chart new systems, contact new cultures, and increase the Empire's knowledge of uncharted space. We were eight hundred parsecs, a little over twenty sector lengths, beyond the border. Few, if any, ships ventured this far for any reason. Prudent minds at Capitol apparently thought someone should. By the way, he interjected, the system activated you as an exception. There is no urgent situation. We have time to talk and discuss. Let's adjourn to the captain's suite. Certainly. I was always on the alert for problems, but I genuinely sensed nothing amiss. As we left the bridge, the captain spoke proudly of this ship, a 40,000-ton cruiser of the newest design. This must be part of the new shipbuilding scheme Lord Ankuga had discussed. We left the Empire in 426. We've been away for eight years. We don't expect to be back for another twelve. We're dedicating essentially all of our service careers to this one mission, to scout out threats to the Empire in this direction. We're a community, a mix of compatible sofonts and genders, a proportion of dedicated pairs, even provision for youth education. We have a small population of children. The oldest just turned seven. In Tryon's quarters, we settled into comfortable chairs, and he continued. Occasionally, we were interrupted by Marines with refreshments. This ship could jump five parsecs, sixteen light-years, at a time. Several jumps back, a chance encounter with a local trader mentioned a human-settled world, and Talon's course was diverted for a visit. By the trader's report, this was supposed to be a thriving human world with a billion people and rudimentary interstellar trade. When we arrived, yesterday, we found a smoking ruin. Self-inflicted, no less. Two years ago, the locals basically went crazy. No fewer than three nuclear wars. Cities sacked by rioting mobs, Luddites, berserkers. Craziness run rampant. There are a few enclaves of sanity in remote regions. And now we see the first steps of recovery. And they supposedly knew it was coming. They had warnings, but just couldn't do anything about it. Warning? Bear with me, please. They trade with other worlds, mostly coreward from here. Those worlds experience the same thing. There's a wave, literally a wave, of insanity emanating from the core. It's about a month thick. It starts low, rises in intensity to peak at the half point, and then subsides leaving in its wake a world where about half the people have gone crazy. Some of them recover. A lot don't. Not just people, either. Animals, fish, trees, plants all act irrationally. And how does a plant act irrationally? Plants less so than animals, but vegetation sprouts out of season, leaves grow erratically, grasses grow in quick spurts and then turn winter brown. This world had almost two billion people ten years ago, now it's down to a third. Some died from craziness. Most died from wars and technological failure that the craziness produced. A decade ago, 
this world had jump drive and sophisticated computers. Today it can barely handle steam power. Almost the entire infrastructure has been destroyed. As he slowed down, I asked some questions. These are humans? From where? We aren't certain. We don't think they're ancient cast-offs. They seem to have been here for about 4,000 years. Which makes them, what, First Empire refugees? Yes, probably. The records we looked at aren't clear. The local language hints at Volani, but there are vowel shifts. So tell me your concerns, Captain. What needs to be done here? He focused on two. What potential does this world have as it recovers to threaten the Empire? And what is this wave of craziness? I agreed. We talked for quite a while, laying plans. The next day on the bridge, we put our discussions into action. I announced to all, I am Agent Insul of the Quarantine, acting under Edict 97. Let's get started. I addressed the Marine officer in charge of ship's troops. Force Commander, Sensops has identified a library with substantial historical information as well as records of the craziness. I need it harvested. Your orders have been sent to your comm. The captain and I had crafted them last night, re-evaluated them this morning, and agreed they should be issued. I addressed our engineer. We need a duplicate maker shop for delivery planet side. How long? He estimated a week, and I accepted. I addressed comms. We need a meeting of the top five, yes, five leaders, on a neutral field in two weeks. Set that up. He asked about criteria, and I suggested power base and population. I told him there was a memo with more information. I could have done this all by memo, but it helped that everyone saw what everyone else was doing. The captain looked on approvingly. 340-434 Kaysen Sector 0914 Bonacher C885 8 Unknown Unknown-4 Garden World Pre-High Population We met on a dry lake bed, flat, with visibility to the horizon. All five invited leaders received separate instructions on arrival times. They were assigned distinct preparation areas, and they converged from different directions. We emplaced fabric sun shelters at the five points of a pentagon, centered on our assault lander. I sat in the shadow of the lander and waited as ground vehicles approached, kicking up clouds of dust. Each expedition, with its protectors and advisors, arrived to its own designated point to be greeted by a single spacer in imperial colors. Our reception for them was a demonstration of power. With atmospheric temperature above 40, the air under the shelters was a comfortable 20. Coolers held refreshments. Displays showed views of the other shelters and of our central assault lander. Those in each shelter could see where everyone else was and what they were doing. Other displays ran loops discussing in broad terms how a maker shop worked and how a portable fusion module worked. It all consumed huge amounts of power. It was meant to make an impression. At the appointed time, the five leaders were announced by their titles and names and escorted to their audience with me. I greeted them warmly while a translator provided meaning to my words. Several lander excursions had visited local populations and researched greeting and hospitality customs, and I now was well-versed. Impressions are always important. On the other hand, their names were long and cumbersome. 
I called them one through five, and the translator would spew out Lord Master Analenti Fedelkinley, or first of equals Thint Inantian Nap, as appropriate. Once the five were seated, I stood before them and made our proposal. It was patterned on the expansionist policies of the first century empire. We had a gift of a dozen Fusion Plus modules for each of the attending leaders. They had already seen their power output demonstrated. We promised there would be more. Our price was simple. All would swear fealty to the Empire and the Emperor. One of them would become ascendant and receive a maker shop that would create more modules, enough to fuel the recovery of this world and propel it to greater heights than ever before. I insisted on an immediate response. I allowed no discussion. I had already ranked them by power and population and proposed that one— the leader of the eastern region of the primary continent, be ascendant. He accepted. The others acquiesced. We moved immediately to the oaths of fealty. A voice in my ear analyzed the five. They don't like him. They don't trust him. Three seems to be leading the discussion and getting the consensus. I tapped a silent acknowledgement on a communicator stud. One of my spacers stepped forward and administered the oath in three languages, Anglic, Volani, and the local tongue. As he finished, a marine stepped forward. We had rehearsed this. He was a body linguist. He had instructions that his evaluation would be public rather than whispered, whatever the result. We hoped for loyalty. We were prepared for not. In the local tongue, he lies. His oath is false. I shot him. He fell. I kicked his body off the raised platform myself. The retainers and entourage in the sun shelters watched in horror and with a bit of fascination. None made a move. I made a short speech about how the Empire requires honor and loyalty above all else, that oaths are what bind us in common purpose, that false oaths are worse than death and they inevitably bring death. I called up three. The translator said, Honored leader Flinge Barolasso, and proposed that he be ascendant. He accepted, although a bit nervously. The oath was again administered, and my body linguist spoke after, He speaks truth. The other three leaders swore subordinate oaths. I dismissed them to their sun shelters. There were details to be handled now. Now dead one's people were told that he had violated protocol. Later, his replacement could swear fealty to three. Control codes were distributed. Module deliveries were arranged. My job was done. 345-434, aboard ISS Talon, orbiting Kaysen Sector, 0914, Bonacher, C-8858, unknown, unknown, dash 4, Garden World, pre-high population. Captain Tryon and I sat in his suite and discussed our month's work. Tryon asked, Do you think they will expand to touch the Empire? Do you think the Empire will expand to touch them? I mused, no. The distance is too great. We'll probably never see them again. But they will become a powerhouse in this sector. Others will have to defer to them. And since they owe theoretical fealty to the Empire, we rise in everyone's estimation. So we have an outpost far beyond our borders. Do we send emissaries to them? Is that even practical? I'm more concerned about the craziness. Does it do this every time? To everyone? What happens when it reaches the Empire? In 800 years? 
That's a long time from now. Long time or not, it will get there eventually. When you return, I've marked the relevant files for forwarding to quarantine. The library the Marines harvested should go to the archive on Vland. Over the next several days, I analyzed and researched what I could about this world and this region. On my last evening, before I evaporated, I ruminated on this particular experience. I'd only killed one person. Epiphany Once upon a time, my second father and I visited a windswept shore, and he told me of the marvels of the worlds. The wind whipped our faces, and I felt very grown up as I told him what I knew of cities and continents and seas, while he listened very, very intently. We ate our prepackaged lunches, and then, for some reason, he, or I, or we together, decided to send a message to some unknown reader in a far-off land. We thought hard about what we should say, and decided on simplicity itself. Do good in the world. I scrawled it in my childish hand and tucked it into our empty drink container. Out on the breakwater, as far as we could venture, we waited until the wind was just right, and then I flung that capsule as hard as my little arm could. I wondered if anyone would ever read it. 132-460, aboard BF Extreme, orbiting Verge Sector 3202, Ketuba, C-563-875-8, pre-high-population. The briefing started with the basics, an image of an inverted triangle labeled Process, with its vertices marked Strategy, Tactics, Intelligence. The next image provided foundational data. The world below us was in Verge Sector. Lieutenant Harka talked us through the codes, just to make sure we are on the same channel. Rudimentary starport, and thus infrequently visited and with very little trade. A small world with a thin atmosphere, chemically tainted enough that filter masks were necessary for humans. About a third of the world's surface was seas, less than normal, less than optimal. Billions of sofonts, given the atmospheric taint, most of them were indigenes, governed by a representative democracy, theoretically at least. That many people meant there had to be a relatively large bureaucracy. The legal system was unobtrusive, which meant that a lot of people carried self-defense items or clustered in self-protective sub-communities. Finally, technology was fairly sophisticated. That implied, in light of the lack of starport facilities, that this world was not especially interested in off-world affairs. I noted and appreciated the briefers' editorializing, expanding the single-digit codes with their logical consequences. She was indeed helpful in making sure we were on the same channel. She moved to the danger statement. Danger is potential harm. We evaluate it at 10, extending to the entire world, but not beyond. Threat, the source of the danger, is regional. Actually, it's one of the seas. We evaluate it at 8. The other seas are shallow. This particular sea of Adesh is extremely deep and accesses core volcanic processes. That brings us to the risk statement. A new image appeared. A large numeral 11 flanked by three smaller numbers. 5, 6, 0. Probability, if events continue, is almost certain. The 5 flashed. Severity, again, if events continue, will be total destruction of the current social and government structure. The 6 flashed. When? Months, maybe even a couple years. 
The zero flashed. I interrupted. Destruction? Is that deaths? No, not necessarily. It's on the next graphic. Which appeared. Our evaluation predicts volcanic activity will essentially vaporize the Sea of Adesh. That has trade and transport consequences, but they are overwhelmed by the probable atmospheric changes. Massive environmental and climate change over a short period of time. Crop failures. Health issues. This world faces immense challenges within the next year, and they will last for centuries. A new image appeared. I saw predictive animations of murky skies, storms, and flooding. Catastrophic winter. It all seemed fairly straightforward. Is there an action plan? No, Agent. Any pro-action would work more chaos than letting nature take its course. There are some educational measures we can implement. Our recommendation is to apply an Amber Zone advisory on the system and provide what support we can. There is no way to evacuate billions of people. There are some problems that just cannot be fixed. Thank you. I agreed. People would die. Fortunes would be lost and won. But that happens anyway. There was no sense that the threat reached beyond this system or potentially affected the Empire. Rule 2 really didn't apply here. But with that conclusion, a stray and irrelevant thought came to me. Lieutenant, please go back to your first image. A succession of flashes brought us back to the original triangle. Tell me about this foundation. Yes, Agent. Strategy is our ultimate plan of action, or in this case, inaction. Tactics is our means of achieving our strategy. We invert the triangle to show that all plans are balanced on good intelligence. I try to show this graphic first in presentations in order to direct our thoughts toward well-reasoned action. My mind raced. She stood there as I surrendered myself to thought. It wasn't that I purposely ignored her. I was compelled by an epiphany. I felt both used and empowered. The feeling passed in what felt like an instant, but I realized that those around me were waiting nervously. Thank you, Lieutenant. I turned to the squadron commander. Thank you, Commodore. This is an excellent evaluation, and I concur. Please arrange for a series of meetings with your staff over the next three watches. I want to take what steps we can to minimize upheaval and consequences. I dismissed them, but asked the briefer to remain. We were now alone in the vast briefing chamber. I quizzed the briefer on mundane facts and concepts. Tell me the current date. 132-460. Who now sits on the Iridium throne? Martin III. How fared the Empire? We grow. We have peace. What party was in ascendance? A coalition of reds and oranges, the centrists and the statists. What was the latest technological advance she could think of? Some improvement in laser territory. What was the current social trend within her experience? She liked the current realism-based musical theater, which surprised me because that was popular when I was a boy. As I gathered this information and processed it, I also examined my epiphany. I was chosen, selected, created to protect the Empire. Our training and instruction, our standing orders, were all established to direct us to right action. Activate my personality. Tell me the facts and the situation, and I applied my expertise to make a decision. When it was over, I returned to my genie bottle wafer until the next crisis.
Her graphic pointed out that without information, without intelligence, I would become increasingly detached from the mainstream of society. My very mission required more. I created for myself Rule 6. Right action requires intelligence. I would be alive for another four weeks. I had the time to start the intelligence-gathering process. We classified the Ketuba system amber. The label would propagate through the trade lanes. Travelers and merchants would be warned that this world faced upheaval, that there was a personal risk attached to visiting. Visitors were rare in any case, but now the databanks would warn the unwary. In a year or two, the label would reach capital and become truly official. In a few centuries, someone would re-examine the situation and might, or might not, change the warning back to green. My meetings with staff directed a compilation of reference data on dealing with climate change, weather-related catastrophes, and social unrest. The petabytes of information in a variety of accessible formats would be distributed widely and would probably save, over centuries, millions of lives. I next spent a day reviewing recent historical information. I asked for a census of ships in the system. I interspersed these requests with discussions of Ketuba and projections of the catastrophes it could expect. I arranged for the Emperor's noble to visit us in orbit. We gave him a thorough briefing. We did everything possible. 135-460 aboard BF Extreme, orbiting Verge Sector 3202, Ketuba, C-563875-8, pre-high population. Run a personnel screen for me. Yes, Agent. What criteria? Let's do it here. Bring up the file overview. Naval officers. Pilot skilled. Liaison qualified. There are eight. Start at the top. Display it. Gustav, Lieutenant. I looked at the text on the screen without commenting. Human, female. Skip ahead. Trenchants, Sub-Lieutenant. The personnel file showed a plexin. Skip ahead. Cobalt, Sub-Lieutenant. MCG awarded for the action on Akinar. Human, male. Ah, no wafer jack. Skip ahead. Ten, Lieutenant. Liaison certified. This one had exceptional marks. I saw the wafer jack notation. Good. Gender was trans male. Mental pause. How do the hormones work? Or the genes? Would this be a male wafer and female? Best not take the chances. Skip ahead. Shugensa, sub-lieutenant. Exceptional pilot rating. Human, male, wafer jack. Select that one. Have him assigned as my aide. What about the others? No need. 160-460, aboard BF Extreme, orbiting Verge Sector 3202, Ketuba, C-563875-8, pre-high population. Sub-Lieutenant N. Shugensa was a capable aide. He was attentive. He understood his place. He ensured that I had nutritious meals with enjoyable tastes. He learned my preferences in music and found pleasant, relaxing melodies to support planning sessions. He gatekept without overstepping. He learned how I operated and worked to complement my methods. I wished he could accompany me into the future. For my part, I conversationally engaged him in idle moments. I discovered his likes, his passion for his career, for learning. He enjoyed history and the lessons it taught. 
he was especially fascinated with the many human minor races. As my days dwindled down, I needed to act. Ben, join me. Close the door. Sir? I was prepared. I simply needed to cover some preliminaries. I have appreciated your assistance to me over the past weeks. You have done an excellent job of support. I thank you sincerely. Sir, I thank you for the opportunity for this experience. My time here is drawing to a close. The engine wafer, which holds my personality, is a special technology. It only works in a specific host once, and after that the host builds an immunity. It malfunctions in non-males, or in non-humans. My personality in this host will fade in the next few days, which is fine. The crisis here is relatively low-grade and is being handled competently. On the other hand, I need to make a report to quarantine headquarters. Personally, I am sending you to capital with my wafer. When you get there, you will be my host so I can make the report. Rule 1. I've prepared orders. I pointed to a package on the table. You are promoted to lieutenant. Congratulations. He started to speak, and I waved him silent. There's more. You are assigned command of the fleet corvette Yukimur. Proceed directly to capital. These orders assign you to the quarantine agency in their appeals office. Once there and in place, your instructions govern using my wafer. These particular instructions were in writing rather than electronic, the safer thus from prying sensors. I want you to understand that I make this assignment because I value and appreciate the work you have done for me, and because I have great confidence in your abilities. And to myself, I thought, because you're human, male, and have a wafer jack. You will go far in the service. I removed my wafer from its niche and included it in the package of orders. It records my personality in real time, and so I have no memory of my activities thereafter. The Journey to Capital Maybe you have a wafer jack. Then you know how it works. Hold the skill wafer to the niche in the nape of your neck, and you can feel the magnets pull. There is just the slightest wobble in your thought processes, but other than that, if you aren't really thinking, then you feel nothing special, and that's normal. It's when you're thinking that it matters. The skills kick in, and suddenly that gibberish of equations in front of you makes sense. You aren't any smarter, but you suddenly understand what the symbols and the characters mean and how they interact. Taking the wafer out is like closing a door. You know that you knew just a minute before, but no longer. The warnings say, Don't leave the wafer in place for more than 30 days. Take breaks. Monitor for non-standard reactions or behaviors. Too many people ignore them and end up on restoratives. Worse, they develop an immunity to wafers which either stop working or provide nonsense skills. I once knew a clerk who worked an entire shift finding that the solution to every equation was one, or minus one. He knew there were two roots to the equation, and never caught on. The engine wafer is different. Hold it to the nape of your neck and you feel the magnets pull. There is the slightest wobble in your thought processes, and suddenly you are somewhere else, in a different position, in a different place, in different clothes. When you check the time, it's four weeks later. You, whoever you were in the interim, have done things that will gradually unfold to you, maybe. He used your body and your voice and your name, but it certainly wasn't you. If you are lucky, the use wasn't major and things returned to normal. 
For some, it was major, and they transfer you to someplace new, where no one remembers that other you or knows what that other you did. 281-461 Aboard AF Yukimur, above Core Sector, 1424, Kuzgarlu, B-652-AEE-B, High Population, Poor World. Yukimur's displaced captain had not been happy, but the service is not about making people happy. Now Lieutenant Shugensa's journey, commanding one of the fleet's routine couriers, covered 97 parsecs in just about 58 weeks. A week in jump, a week in system refueling, a week in jump, another week in system refueling. There was an element of tourism, seeing new systems and strange worlds. Shugensa had instructed the astrogator to include Ilelish, the homeworld of the Swaret, on their itinerary if it did not affect total travel time. Several weeks out, it had become apparent that the travel controls in the aftermath of the Alelish revolt would make a casual visit ill-advised. Chugensu was disappointed, but philosophical. Perhaps another time. Now the ship was almost to its destination. 297-461, aboard AF Yukimur, above Core Sector 1822, Olex, A200353-C, Low Population, Vacuum World Lieutenant Shugensa's astrogator strictly followed standard procedures in the final stages of their journey to capital. At Holex, a rock ball of a world significant only because it had a naval base on the edge of the identification zone, they received time-stamped authorization codes and strict compliance procedures. The final jump itself was uneventful. Breakout was almost dead on time followed by immediate instructions to maneuver to a holding area and then slow movement to the naval base annex of the high port above capital. Ana Shakila I opened my eyes to the stadium and its expansive people as far as I could see. Somehow I knew that they extended beyond as far as I could see, well into the gray haze. I felt contrary today, and I turned my attention not to the events before us, but instead to the upper levels of the audience. I ascended stairs, a seeming infinity of flights, until I reached a concourse, itself overhung by another infinity of stadium tiers. I knew no one, recognizing only the presence of humans and Vargar and Aslan and others. I had seen such crowds before, in starport terminals, in harvest festivals, at affinity rallies. There were pockets of similar people intent on their own destinations some rushing, some sauntering, a few just standing in place waiting. I found a transport line, car pods that held a few handfuls each, and I randomly boarded one with no real purpose or destination. I watched through its view panels as we passed seas of sofants ebbing to their own currents. In that mass of people, I recognized someone, which was a surprise because faces have always meant less to me than identity cards or uniforms and insignia of rank. More surprising was the look of recognition that the face shot back. When the pod halted momentarily, I exited and backtracked its route, walking against the stream, forcing myself against their collective flow. There were enough taller than I to make my struggle blind. But then the flow lessened, and in a wider part of the concourse I was suddenly in front of my goal, the chancely recognized face of a newt. We stopped, 
and considered each other briefly. And then it was he who spoke. You are the agent. In a flash of recognition, I now said, And you are the mining engineer. I am. There was silence as we stood there, even as we were surrounded by millions. He made an excuse. I must move on. My tala, and as he said it, I knew in my mind's ear that he referred to an extended family line, is assembling to observe an important generational accomplishment. I understand, but surely there is a reason for this chance encounter. Surely, he replied, and he was gone. 233-449, aboard BB Courageous, above Antares Sector 0204, Anna Shakila, E-674-8A9-6, pre-agricultural, pre-high population, pre-industrial. Excuse me, sir. This was a young spacer interrupting me. A Marine moved in to hold her back, but I waved him away. Yes? I wanted to tell you how glad I am you decided quarantine would work. I'm glad all those people will live. As am I. I think my grandmother served with you at Maurer. She was a calm. I remember that action, but I can't say I remember any specific crew members. She came home the next year, back to the farm. She was never the same. Tell me about it. I had time. I, of course, didn't know her until years afterwards. To me, she was just my quiet farmer grandmother. She was always gentle. She was always caring and dedicated. I loved going to the farm. My parents run it now. Only after she died did I ask about her service. Mother said when she came home, came back to the farm, she stopped selling the livestock. She just let them die of old age. She went vegan. They raised crops, did a lot of gardening, struggled for a while. Mother and I had a long talk when I decided to enlist. Grandmother was only in the Navy four years for her required reserve service, but she came back changed. After a few years, other grandmother left her. I read her service record, that she was at Marur. That explained a lot. Like? She sometimes talked about the spirits that live in the trees and the animals in the sky, about the Dakaseri watching us. She was always trying to appease the spirits. Sometimes she walked at night in the fields and just screamed. I'll follow orders, sir, but I'm glad I'm not going to have these people on my conscience. There was a hint of something here that I needed to know more about. Spacer, I want you to do a project for me. Find the crew manifest for the ships involved at Maror. I want to know the post-service status of all involved. A synopsis will be fine to start. Show it to me when you're done. I dismissed her. 234-449, aboard BB Courageous, above Antares Sector 0204, Anna Shakila, E-674-8A9-6, pre-agricultural, pre-high population, pre-industrial. The sergeant major told me to brief the agent on his sidearms. I took the case to him in the command suite. Uh, sir? I was under arms and saluted. He returned it looking up from a control tablet. Yes? The sergeant major sent you your sidearms. Fine. Put them on the table. I should really brief you on them. He put down his work and gave me his full attention. What are these? I opened the case while talking. This first one is an A-SNAP-12, 
That's ASNP-12. It stands for the Advanced Snub Pistol. The 12 is the tech level. We call it a staple gun because, I held it out to show him, it looks like one. I rattled off the standard book information that we all memorized. It's meant for close stuff, to a maximum of 50 meters. Lightweight, about half a kilo. He asked, how much does this thing cost while hefting it in his hand? Lance Corporal Dinsha lost one three missions ago and it cost him half a year's pay. But Lance Corporals don't make that much. So maybe a thousand credits. As he hefted it, I showed the control points. Trigger, grip safety, it won't fire unless you hold it firmly. Thumb safety, up is on, so swipe it down to make it active. The barrel is short. What, ten millimeters? Five, sir. The feed puts the little slivers in place. The battery and coils force them out at half the speed of light. Really? he asked. No, sir, that's just what we tell recruits. It's about a thousand meters per second. Did you know my mandate lets me kill anyone I want? I stopped, afraid I had overstepped. No, sir. It's true, but I usually don't kill in groups of less than a hundred, so you're safe. What's this other one? I decided to just make the presentation and get out of there. Sir, this is your non-lethal option. Yellow handle, smooth grip. The APJ-12. It shoots a barbed, self-contained electric thing. Thing? Sorry, capsule. A barbed, self-contained electric capsule that inflicts debilitating pain and incapacitating shock to most targets in the human size range. It also works against most devices if you hit it right. There's ten capsules in the magazine. I really want it to be done. Is there anything else, sir? No, Sergeant. Thank you for your briefing. I saluted and really didn't wait for it to be returned. I also forgot to get the receipt signed. If necessary, I would forfeit half a year's pay. 236-449 aboard AF Catalesh in the outer system of Antares Sector 0204 on a Shakila E674889-6 pre-agricultural, pre-high population, pre-industrial. With Anashakila interdicted, the squadron set about establishing secure patrols throughout the system. A picket reported an anomaly in a gas giant ring, and because the administrative tasks were well handled by ship's crew, I traveled with a fast courier to look it over. The picket picked this up on routine scans. When sensors said it was not natural, they reported it as an exception, and we were notified. As I examined the images on a central display screen, I asked natural questions. Has anyone been up close? No, Agent. We're not sure what they are. The picket captain made his report and left it to us. Are they all the same? They sense as similar. 200 meters across. Spherical. Density is about four times water, so it's more than just ice. Consistent with rock. Not enough for fenny. It's not large enough to be spherical by its own gravity, so it has to have been shaped by some process. The picket originally mistook it for a ship. It's big enough to be a lioness. Any signals from it? No, Agent. Entirely passive. I want to look closer. A gig took us almost to it, and we leapt the final gap in suits. As I drifted closer, I saw that it was an assemblage of smaller, puffy sacks, slack balls, each roughly spherical about a double arm's length across, and joined together in a mass. I twisted and touched feet first with a thump. 
Native gravity here was minuscule, perhaps a newton or two. I knew to be careful. An unintentional move could send me drifting away. The surface was striated with divisions between its many-colored sacks. Here and there, the darkness of a pit, a missing sack. I drifted to one pit, close enough to see that it descended deeper into the interior. One of my companions cut a sack's membrane and it expelled a glitter of crystals in an expanding cloud. Metal flakes, sir. Take a sample. I noted that the sacks had different colors and shades. Are they all the same? There followed a series of exhales as several were cut. No, agent. This one's a powder. That other one was a gas. Take samples. A now flaccid gas sack revealed a cavity and blow that another layer of sacks. I hauled myself in, and as I did, my foot ruptured a gas sack below. I held tight to the membrane as the exhaling greenish gas rushed past me. My suit light showed another layer of sacks below. I did not want to climb deeper. I made the leap back to the gig and watched the remainder of the operation on screens from an acceleration couch. After about two hours, we returned to our ship. There were seven of these balls, each as big as a battleship. Tests on samples revealed elemental gases, or solid flakes, or granules. They found no liquids, at least in the outer layers. In conclusion, I said, This can't be natural, can it? The text said, Define natural. Not intelligent. This has to be some sort of asteroid miners or ring harvesters who go through the system breaking down minerals into their constituent elements. What, with a bio-based technology? That makes sense, doesn't it? One of the megacorporations setting up a mining operation with geneered spacers? Conceivably. Or some natural species, maybe not even intelligent, like bees making honey. The text created a report. I classified it penultimate and directed it be forwarded to the archives. When I returned to Courageous, I ordered the balls be tipped into the gas giant. They were a complication this interdicted system didn't need. 253-449, aboard BB Courageous, above Antares Sector 0204, Anashakila, E-674-8A9-6. Pre-agricultural, pre-high population, pre-industrial, puzzle, amber. Tell me your findings. Agent, today there was a stiffness, subordinate to superior. The squadron at Maurer had six capitals, 14 others, and a total of 3,442 officers and crew. That was 68 years ago. My grandmother was not an outlier. Almost all reservists in the crew left the service as soon as their obligation expired. There were significantly higher rates of suicide, self-harm, charitable behaviors, and depression. There was more, but it all led to the same conclusion. Capital Capital, the planet once known as Cilea, is a moderate-sized world with a lot of people, compounded by the fact that a little more than half its surface is water. A lot means 80 billion. Moderate-sized means, after subtracting water, about 8 billion hectares. A tenth is devoted to food production. Long ago that was two-tenths, but that was long ago. It is impractical, if not impossible, to import food for billions of people. Two-tenths is mountain, canyon, rock, and crag. 
Another two-tenths is snowlands. Both support scattered communities, but certainly no appreciable population density. Half the land is urban, 4 billion hectares for 80 billion people, perhaps 20 per hectare, 2,000 per square kilometer. Terribly crowded, oppressive, single-level urban areas make do with such densities over a few hundred square kilometers. Capital maintains such densities across all its settled lands. Yet, for many, capital is a pleasant environment, an attractive community. High-rise and plunging arcologies house millions in high-density comfort and safety. The masses of the bureaucracy that drive the engines of the empire must live in comfort and safety. On the other hand, there are the others that are always there. The poor, the disadvantaged, the underendowed, the unmotivated, the disaffected. Strict travel controls, and there are strict travel controls on capital, cannot completely restrain workers discarded by their employers or laborers in the shadow economy. Of capital's 80 billions, some portion, probably counted as a tenth, survive outside the conventional social structure. 304-462, Core, 2118, Capital. A, 586-A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. After the long journey to capital, the time had come and my orders were clear. I wondered what would happen if I just ignored them and reported to my new assignment. Would the agent ever know? Would I just use this assignment as another step in my career progression? If I become host, what prevents him from some terrible misuse of me, of my body, or my identity? This wouldn't be on his record. What happens accrues not to him, but to me. But the agent was always cordial, competent, self-assured. He knew what to do, and he never abused his power. He treated me with respect, always. Do I just insert the wafer? Does he need to know of the journey? The situation? I suppose a simple message is enough. I would insert the wafer in the morning. 305-462, Core Sector, 2118, Capital, A586, A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. I awoke seated, consistent with what I expected. Despite the disorientation, I opened my eyes and saw a small room, a residence hotel apparently, crowded with a bed, a console, and a door to the fresher. I was certain, because I was on capital, that this must cost some extraordinary sum. I mused that I had not thought of money for a long time. Before me was a com, my com, with a short visible text. We are in Intel, on capital, per your instructions. I erased it and began. I made sure I was properly uniformed, checked my destination on a console, walkable, combined with public transport. I set out. I dragged a bag with a frictionless bottom. The last time I had done this, the case had had a belly of many small roller wheels. My com gave me hints and signals and at least once directed me along an unfamiliar route. I had not been in weather for years. Sheltered walks and subservice access stations protected me from the snow and the wind, but the experience was both uncomfortable and exhilarating. Nevertheless, after some thirty minutes, I had had enough and was happy to arrive. 
My destination was an office tower hundreds of kilometers from the starport and in the opposite direction of the palace. The building was the same as I remembered, more or less. The neoclassical facade, with its ridiculous 200-meter-tall columns, appeared to have been cleaned or renewed at least once. At reception, they did not know what to do with me. I had valid orders assigning me to a position. The control codes and the check digits matched, but there was no local record. They were aware that this sometimes happens. Some Marquis in another sector gave his favorite sycophant's rising scion a sinecure on capital, a pieda salia, so to speak. They thought I was such as that. I did not disabuse them. I was given an office and a console and told to acquaint myself with their system. I went through the motions in about an hour sessions, punctuated by discussions with others to carefully update myself on social norms after more than a century. I made the excuse that I was from the edge of the Great Rift, as indeed my host was. We had talked of his life from time to time, and I was accepted without any real comment. My office mates were always happy to talk of themselves and their interests, and I learned more than they realized. After a week I took a break. I arranged the coming week as leave. I was still a naval officer, after all. I went to Capital, the city. Strangely, when I had lived here, it never seemed important to visit the icons. I knew what they looked like. I saw them in the distance. I could recognize them, and their names tripped off my tongue. The palace, the moot spire, the grand plaza of heroes, Cleon's tomb, the imperial archives, the central forest, the route de Palais, even the Second Empire Monument. At last I would see them. 312-462, Four Sector, 2118, Capital. A-586-A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. I visited the Moot Spire, the very place that the decisions of empire are made. Technically, I was welcomed past the simple barriers that separated the masses from the elite. I was a knight of the empire, one of those elites. My name was recorded in the rolls of those favored by the emperor. But my host was not and there was no way that I could even consider crossing those arbitrary boundaries. I saw the Grand Palace from afar. I peered through its black metal fence rods at the carefully coiffed gardens and its strangely trimmed trees. I strolled the Plaza of Heroes, conjuring up names of those I had known either before or after my death, and asking my calm if they were remembered here. It gave me verbal and visual cues for some. I stood over a brick incised with the name of my marine comrade Arlane and briefly remembered his life and his death. I touched another brick, noting the presence of Patel at the scrubbing of Marur. Of others, there was no record. They might be remembered in other plazas of other heroes on other worlds, but not here. I visited the Imperial Salons. The exhibit on Osmancy was unsatisfying. Observing people prepare tastes and conjure smells cannot compare to actually tasting and smelling. It was like a sculpture exhibit one is not allowed to touch. The exhibit of now classic art from the 3rd century resonated with me. I understood those artists' purposes, their reflections on what 3rd century folk felt. On the other hand, 
I noticed others around me confused by the same techniques that so spoke to me. I visited the Museum of History. There was a hierarchy of presentation, and naturally the greatest focus was on emperors and empresses. They became surrogates for the science, the conquests, the politics, the advancements, and the challenges of each's reign. I knew Porphyria as an image in the news. I had actually met Anguistus once. I knew little of the Martins, nor of the current Nicole. Each chamber told me something of the era, reminded me of what I had learned in school, pointed out what I had not then realized, or that time had elevated in importance. I remembered favored sports teams winning championships season after season, and all my office mates exhilarated for weeks with the thrill and the pride. But there was little mention of those events here. I visited the Museum of Sophons. This was a new structure, built since my demise, reflecting the completion by the scout service of its first survey of the worlds of the Imperium and its client territories some ten years before. There were major exhibits on the Varger, the Aslan, and the many variants of humanity. There was a series of rotating displays on some less common sofants, those who rejected technology, those restricted by environment or temperament to their own particular homeworlds, those too aggressive to be allowed off their homeworlds. Guided groups of students wandered the halls, more or less following a docent, but more interested in small group social hierarchies than the splendor of independent evolution of intelligent life. I paused at a small display, even-handedly presenting the conflicting concepts of the origins of humanity across many worlds. Parallel evolution across a hundred worlds. Vlani origins, my own favorite conclusion, as my ancestors came from Vland. The Solomani hypothesis of origins on far-off primitive Terra. The Gashagi garden world concept. And in consideration of sensitive feelings, presentations on Giani, Swerat, and Castledan origins. I wandered into a virtual display and pressed buttons randomly to see what came up. Images and data on a strange green foreped with eyes on stalks and twenty-some fingers on each hand. A hulking horn-nosed giant with auxiliary arms folded on its chest, and a strange flattened leather ball that moved by weight shift rolling. A small group with unusually loud voices entered behind me, and I moved on. I took a wrong exit, returning from my excursion. The fast transport doors opened, and a rush of people carried me into a waiting area. I was not paying full attention, and ended up in a pedestrian mall filled with many small groups of people, diverse as to species, but all at the low end of the economic spectrum. I was out of place, and I felt it immediately. I could feel eyes watching me. I stopped to consult my calm. Where was I? It told me numbers and names that meant nothing to me. I turned to retrace my steps and found that the transport gates were closed. The comm directed me to a different access portal some minutes away. Are you lost? This growl from the tallest of three Varger, who now blocked my way. He smiled, but a dog smile looks more like a threatening snarl than a friendly greeting. His companions kept their lips closed, but fangs nonetheless protruded. Part of me imagined myself ripped to shreds by this pack of carnivores. Others on the street seemed prepared to allow that without interfering. I knew what to do. With dogs, it's show no fear. Rule one works as well. I am, and I thank you for your question.
I'm Lieutenant N. Shugensa, and I have taken a wrong turn. How do I re-enter the fast transport? The Varger are motivated by small group dominance. This primary had my attention. His companions would do nothing without his direction. I just needed to dominate him. He started to make an answer, and I interrupted. Forgive me. Please tell me your name. I am Arlen Ruffle. I knew the spelling from the pronunciation. Arlen Ruffle. It was in Gveg, the most common of their languages. Arlen Ruffle. I repeated his name properly pronounced. I appreciate your offer of assistance. He had not offered, I assumed. Capital is a wonderful place for those who visit, perhaps less wonderful for those who live here. Would you guide me to my transport stop? I knew the general direction from my calm. I started walking and assumed he would as well. Tell me, Arlen Ruffle, what do you do? There followed a conversation about the transitory jobs that the underpeople of capital do, their efforts to live outside the array of standard jobs and avoid violations that would export them in cold sleep to strange and inhospitable worlds. Before that point, and I mean in my former life as well as now, I had been oblivious to anyone but the middle and upper classes. I enjoyed our conversation. I asked for his comm identifier as we parted and noted it in mine. 313-462, Core Sector 2118, Capital A586A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. There is a classic theme in literature. Stories of men, people, sophants, presumed dead, who are granted the opportunity to witness their own funerals and hear what those in life felt about someone now passed on. In my various classes, I had casually read texts and regurgitated interpretations, but now those thoughts came back to me in a rush as I exited the fast transport line at the necropolis at Antel. I had made my arrangements and would only now, after a century, finally see them. I searched with anticipation for our family plot and memorial. I had been cheated. My funerary steel, intended to stand three meters tall, rose barely an arm's length, truncated a third of the way up into a clumsy point. Here it stood, a pantographed, distorted scale model of itself, cut from inferior stone, rising to my waist, lost among the others. I stooped and thought as I traced the base with a finger, affected by an emotion I rarely felt. The letters of my name were there, the numbers of my time were there, but the pillar itself was squat, unsatisfying. Was this rage or just disappointment? I remembered the functionary with whom I had dealt, Emerga, an earnest, sincere man who sat with templed fingers, nodding in active listening mode as I outlined my desires for a suitable memorial. We looked at samples of natural stone from traditional quarries. We reviewed a virtual model, which we rotated with finger motions, making adjustments until it was perfect. I made the appropriate contingent credit transfers, and we parted with an emotional embrace. I remembered that I had left that meeting feeling more positive than I had in days. There was a resolution to issues that had burdened my spirit, and I was even some semblance of happy for a time. I stood now and tapped my calm, asking basic questions about the emerga of a hundred years before. The screen told me of someone in that time serving in an appropriate role. He was not of sufficient importance to rate an historical entry, but the genealogical networks placed him properly in the era with employment and residential confirmations. It told me who his family was, when he died, 
who carried on his line, where he was interred. 314-462, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586-A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. I visited his grave the next day, a continent away, in his grand family plot surrounded with the markers of generations that followed him. He had become an archon, revered by his children's children's children. The center of this family plot was dominated by a sphere of stone, two arms stretches across, its equator incised with a proud epigram from the Dakasari myth. Make your ancestors proud. Teach your children to be well. He had left his personal fortune in trust for their educations, the single best choice he could have made to ensure that they would have the best of all possible lives and that they would hold him in the best of all possible memories. I now labeled my emotion rage, at the cynicism, the dissimulation, the self-service. I had been victimized. I felt momentarily helpless, but only momentarily. I knew the next complete thought in the epigram, and I had near-infinite power. I would make him regret the errors he had made in life. Baronet Sir Fen Emerga had built his first fortune in the funerary industry as a confidential advisor. I had seen him in action. It appeared he had accumulated credits from others in the same way, promising post-death arrangements which he provided only half-heartedly. His later life seemed faultless, filled with grand projects accomplished competently and exceeding expectations. Within his small geographic and socioeconomic communities, he had been well-respected. The emperor recognized him at retirement with a baronetcy, which filled him with pride. He lived a full life and died quietly in his old age, surrounded by family and friends. But his entire life was built on the frauds of his youth. I would make him pay. 318-462, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586-A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. From the sea of potential companions in my office, none had expressed the slightest interest in my life. Our conversations touched on office politics, for which I cared little, and personal activities. In the rare events when someone asked me what I had done, even my answer seemed to focus the conversation back to their recreations and interests. Arlen Ruffles' inquiry, Are you lost? Some three days before, had then seemed to me an ominous threat and I now saw it as politeness, interest, even caring. On a whim, I called Arlen Ruffle and arranged to meet. I think my call was unexpected, but after several minutes he agreed that we should join for an evening meal the next day. 319-462, Core Sector, 2118, Capital A586-A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. Arlen Ruffles' suggestion had been a small restaurant near where we had first met. I prepared myself by researching the neighborhood, alternative access routes, and even took a virtual tour. The place with a nondescript name, Ella's, provided affordable hand meals in three distinct cuisines, Fast Human, Gveg, and Asat. At the appointed time I arrived and entered, to be met immediately by the Varger, alone. I saw his two companions in the distance, but they remained apart. He smiled, and I still half-perceived that as a snarl, and we shook hands. 
he guided me to a table, and we both examined the bill of fare. He narrated our possibilities. This is the only place around here that captures the taste of gveg cooking. They make their own sauces, so a lot of us like it here. By us, I understood him to mean his fellow Varger. And they have a newt cook back there that understands their particular cuisine, especially the live insect garnishes. The painted menu above the counter listed our choices in wrappers, proteins, options, and garnishes. Select one from each column, with an upcharge for additionals. We made our selections. He chose a crisp bread wrapper around a bone-in beef with a tangy sauce and devoted much of our time gnawing on the bone. I selected a whole-grain flat wrap around sliced fowl and a marinated leafy something. I had tried to emulate a selection I remembered, but it didn't quite fit. We also shared a communal bowl of toasted grain. I was interested in who this Varger was and how he lived on capital. He was technically a native, born here to parents who arrived as part of an educational exchange program. When it was complete, they declined to return to their home world and eventually melted into the underground economy. Arlen Ruffles said he made a living doing occasional jobs, deliveries, construction, basic labor. He was a good worker, but such jobs rarely lasted very long. I had the impression that some of the jobs skirted the law, and others were probably outright illegal, but I was polite enough not to probe too deeply. About midway through our conversation, I realized that his friends at the far side of the diner were simply waiting for us to finish. Tell your friends to order for themselves, as they wait. He visited with them briefly and returned to say that they appreciated my hospitality. Our conversation continued for several hours. I was fascinated with this heretofore unseen, for me, aspect of society on capital. By its end, my eyes were opened in ways that I had not expected. We parted late in the evening with an agreement to meet in two weeks. 321-462, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586-A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. In my office, I returned to my job acquaintance process until I was sure that procedures worked essentially the same as in my time. The value of a stable bureaucracy is that processes are literally timeless. My immediate supervisor was a political appointee, nominated by someone in power somewhere in the empire. He was happy enough to be here, but had little ambition for advancement. Every day at end of work, he promptly left to whatever personal pursuit compelled him. He was happy that I took initiative as long as it did not interfere with his own personal time. I, on the other hand, worked late when I needed to, reviewing procedures, analyzing relative inefficiencies, trying to understand reports from the farther reaches of the Empire. One evening, I was alone in the offices and saw my chance to act. There was always a possibility things could go wrong, but I needed to take the risk. I left my console activated scanning data in some mindless task while an entertainment flashed on the supplemental screen. I moved to the other side of the office, found a vacant clerk's console, and logged in as a casual user. I calculated the override codes for the day on a side panel and entered them while holding my breath. I knew they would work on naval computers. I was less sure it would provide access in these offices, but it did. I spent the next few minutes issuing project orders by checking boxes and appending short phrases. While I was at it, I added some benefits for my host with a suspense date a few months and a few decades in the future. Rule 5. 
Then I closed up and made my own way home. My next hire superior, Senior Supervisor Len Starpan, called me into his office two days later to give me my new job. He started rather abruptly. They've instituted an inspection program. Who knows where this came from? And you have been assigned. He tapped his screen. It's all here in the file. Let me know if you have any questions. All I could say was, yes, sir. My title was now Inspector Unipotentiary of the Quarantine Agency. There were four dreadnoughts in system, in orbit. I scheduled a surprise inspection for tomorrow. I started at the Navy base, and my orders preceded and prepared the way for me. I went alone. I had a singleness of purpose. On the other hand, this was new to me. I was accustomed to unquestioned response, and I enjoyed less than that power here. When admirals resisted me, I had them shot. That was probably not my option here. A cutter awaited me on the tarmac. Once I boarded, it leapt into the sky. An hour later, the cutter mated with the dreadnought Cinerac, and I was greeted at the hatch by the officer of the deck. We exchanged pleasantries. We were equals. He was, like I, a lieutenant. I was, like he, armed. He gave me a questioning look at that. I smiled. I showed him my tablet and recited my basic mission. I believe this is routine, a new program the agency has come up with. I also needed to relieve his worries. We are very focused today. I need to see the IT vault, and specifically the quarantine wafers. Nothing else. Not a surprise audit. You can tell the captain, but don't warn IT, please. Oh, I'll need one of your Marines to guide me down there. He was appreciative, told the Marines standing nearby to take me to Deck 8. I was on my way. The IT clerk was surprised. Good. He was flustered. What if his records were not in order? What if his predecessor's records were not in order? Then again, this was new to me, too. Rule 1. Call up your wafer records. I examined them, calmed, ticked my tongue, touched the screen, skipped from screen to screen. None of it mattered, but the records were in good condition. The wafers were all there. I complimented him. Rule 5. Now let's look at the wafers themselves. The vault was locked. Opening it took a couple minutes. It was a triple fault. He was errating and knew the codes. He didn't call an officer to supervise. And then it took too long. I ignored it. He knew it. There were the standard five sets, three of each. Negotiator, advisor, warlord, admiral, and decider. Have these been synced? Yes, sir. With the other ships? Um, no, sir. That takes place during refit which would be every couple decades. I made a mental note on an action plan. Meanwhile, shielded by my body, I substituted my wafer for one of the deciders. I asked him to run through the sync process. He showed himself capable and completed the task in a handful of minutes. When he was done, I sleight of handed my wafer back. I did not, however, reinsert it. That would come later. Indeed, later that day, in the quiet of my resonance, I took my next risk. I was in uncharted territory. Were the rules that we had been told mere guidances to help us understand? Or did the technicians and their technical writers know more and try to convey it in generalities? Nothing in our training covered this particular activity. Could I sink a wafer in mid-activation? Would it scramble my thoughts? I had done what I could. My current memories were already synchronized for future uses. 
the consequences of this fatal experiment would propagate no farther than me and my host. I reinserted the wafer, felt it tug at the nape of my neck, and felt a piercing pain in my brain, a ten on a ten scale, accompanied by brightness in my eyes even as they were closed, always accompanied by a cascade of images and sounds and vibrations and smells. I remembered missions and activations and scrubbings and false alarms that were not there that morning, and just as quickly seemed like they had always been there. I added this particular data point to my experience, along with the resolve that I would not do it again unless absolutely necessary. 331-462, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. In my last days, I revisited the clerk's console one evening. This time I created a series of directives, each encased in a penultimate priority wrapper, validated by single-use override codes, and scheduled to activate over a series of dates. I left them to hatch in the coming month. A grounds crew visited the Emerga plot and executed a series of work orders. A clerk in the office of heraldry received a directive and performed the required ministerial acts that gave it the force of the Emperor's will. A clerk in the Tholar Preservation District coded instructions that warned against any changes to a designated historic section of Regional Cemetery, but only after the current rehab projects were completed. A clerk at Imperial Bank noted an exception report identifying a below-minimum balance status on specific trust accounts and keyed instructions revoking a series of educational stipends. Formal notifications went out to those affected. I also arranged for a stipend for the care of my grave. Ripples of consequences radiated out into the community of now ex-baronet Sir Ben Emerga's descendants. Over the next year, students were disenrolled from schools. Members in good standing of elite clubs found they were no longer in good standing. Customers, patrons, investors, backers, even friends, were forced to reconsider their relationships based on the newly revealed taint to a formerly honored family line. 333 462, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586 A98 D, High Population, Imperial Capital. I met with Arlen Ruffle as we had arranged. His two companions again waited across the room. This time I visited their dining booth and greeted them. Arlen Ruffle and I would like you to choose what you will for dinner. We will be a while enough to acknowledge their leader is powerful, enough to establish that I was also powerful. To Arlen Ruffle I expressed appreciation for the insights he had given me. I reminisced that I had been uncertain of my safety when we had first met. He reminisced that he and his friends had momentarily considered taking my wallet and come, but decided against it on a whim. I have a proposal for you. I hope that you will give it due consideration. There is a caretaking position available a sinecure involving basic maintenance of a gravesite, grooming of plants, removal of litter, respectful maintenance. The position, actually there are three positions. The position will be advertised in the near future. If you care to apply, these codes will assure your and your friend's hiring. I passed over a written card with the details. He expressed polite appreciation and said he would consider it. If you accept... Please understand that there are responsibilities attached. The duties, while slight, are important and are not to be disrespected. 
We parted for the evening, with me wondering if this would change his life. The cost to the Empire would be slight. 335-462, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. Lieutenant N. Shuginsa awoke in virtually the same place he had vanished. The similarity was enough that he was not sure the wafer had had any effect. His calm even lay in the same place before him. But when he looked, its message was different. This mission is complete. The details of your current job assignment are included in the attached memo. If asked about things you do not know or remember, dissemble. I am not permitted to discuss that should be sufficient. If you ever leave the service, maintain your reservist status, even if as an inactive. He smiled, remembering his time with the agent, and inwardly glad that he had survived this assignment. In the next several weeks, he found that he enjoyed his new assignment as Inspector Unipotentiary, and after a year elected to become an inactive reservist and make this his career. 005-463, Core Sector 2118, Capital A586A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. I'm sorry, said the Managing Director of the Necropolis, although in truth he was not. The rehabilitation of the Emerga plot was conducted in accord with specific directives. The supporting documents are in order, but they have been sealed. You may want to petition the Marquis if you want to review them. As if that effort would bear any fruit, he thought to himself. The fact that the Preservation District had frozen changes after the rehab meant that noble powers were squabbling and intelligent people did not interfere. The fact that this family's many generations ago Archon had recently been disabilitated was a different signal that confirmed reasonable conjectures. Within a year, the Emerga plot would be overgrown with weeds. 001-465, Core Sector 2118, Capital A586A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. The Empress, like her predecessors, did not notify in advance recipients of the honors she bestowed. She merely published a list. Formal notifications would follow in time. Devotees of the nobility subscribed to special notification groups. Higher-ranking functionaries made sure that someone or some process monitored the announcements. It fell to sycophants, favor-seekers, and just good friends to carry the news to most recipients. The Empress published her holiday list of newly named knights and ladies and other minor nobles. There was never an explanation of her choices. The Empress need justify herself to no one. Inspector Shuginsa was taking advantage of holiday to sleep in. There would be no work today, but N's calm dinged repeatedly. From his sleep he ignored the first three messages, but ultimately gave in and roused to see what was so important. The first was from an office mate he barely knew. Holiday list. Congratulations. There were messages from senior supervisor Starpan, from his superior, from a fellow lieutenant he knew from reserve sessions, from the commander of the reserve squadron, from three of the clerks who provided him and others administrative support, and from several people he did not recognize. Each greeting carried some part of the puzzle which he ultimately assembled in his mind. The Empress had knighted him on the holiday list. Deus 
I could feel around me the comfort of the stadium, and I opened my eyes. Ben Emerga sat alone in a near-vacant section of the stadium, as if contagious and quarantined, where once he must have sat proudly watching the expanding circles of his descendants, surrounded by his future generations waiting to be born, he was now alone. His children-to-be preferred to sit next to other archons, learning how to live from other, more respectable surnames. I saw him from a distance, and I saw that he saw me, recognized me, but he did not protest, or speak, or even move. Before us was the overgrown Emerga section, exactly as I had directed. The stone sphere shattered, its base engraved with the word cheat in great letters. Below that an exhortation, something Emerga now wished he had himself said. My progeny, you suffer because of my misdeeds. Strive to overcome what I could not. Perhaps some day they would. 333-501 Aboard B.B. Inarik, above Zerushigar Sector 0917, Deus, B. 874-777-9, Agricultural World, Rich World. Abruptly I again stood with my eyes closed, now in silence, feeling a slight vibration through my feet. I squinted one eye open enough to see the ship lighting and a gathered assembly of crew. With it again closed, I spoke. Who here is senior? You are. This was a good start. At least the basic formalities were in place. After me, who? Admiral Slintern commands the squadron. Who is the briefer? I am. Commander Slee. I at last opened my eyes to the broad expanse of the diplomatic reception deck of an Inaric-class battle. I had been on similar ships before. You may begin. Images flashed on the projection screen as the briefer established that we were concerned with a backwater world brought into the Empire in the second century and then more or less ignored. Its ninety-four million inhabitants were about half humans. The other half were indigenes with a strange caste gender structure, many arms and many legs, and a dedication to their rural ways. The humans made their livings buying gathered agriculturals from the natives, processing them, and shipping them to other worlds that seemed to like them. The current image showed a threat evaluation sufficient to activate me. A local parasite had made the transition from locals to humans in an unexpected way. It activated endorphins to produce an addicting pleasure that masked a slow-wasting death. Its intersection with human anatomy made their removal problematic, if not impossible. The Admiral's staff was proud of their action plan. Barriers between humans and locals, careful testing and isolation of those affected, even provision for palliative care. They especially wanted to preserve the historic second millennium Quran's palace. It was clear to me that none of this would work, but that was why the hard decision fell to me and no others. Perhaps I was missing something, but probably not. Thank you, Commander Slee. This has been an excellent and informative presentation. You are to be commended. Admiral, I would like to meet with your staff by section, so that they can brief me specifically on the plan. We should be prepared to act by late tomorrow. Can you please ensure that a preliminary quarantine is in place until we make a final decision? Can you and I and a few of your people dine together tonight and discuss this further? Rule 3. This was always the hard part. I was the interloper, the unknown, the decision-maker that they wanted to rubber-stamp their action plan. At best, I would nod and approve. At worst, I would require a validation or justification or budgets 
or an all-night work session. My comments prompted several sighs of relief. Meetings that afternoon covered basics. Local forces in the system, a few custom folks, a squadron called in from a naval base some two jumps away, and a few merchants upset that they couldn't pick up their promised goods. The naval crew was loyal and reasonably well-trained. A staff officer candidly admitted that some were not up to standard, but they were working on it. The cultural and economic reports showed the indigenes happy to be part of the empire, but not especially interested in traveling beyond their own world. The humans, on the other hand, had strong ties to neighboring systems, and a significant number traveled regularly. That data point confirmed my own conclusions. The penultimate meeting was with the medical staff. They showed slides of the parasites, the size of small beans or small red pearls. They showed graphs of infection rates trending upwards. They shared optimistic projections of controlled territories. Apparently, they had no psychologists among them. I mentioned in passing that I would like to talk to security, the leaders of the three watches, the Marine commander, a captain appropriate for this level of force, and the senior non-commissioned officer. We met in the hour before supper. As we sat down, I started with the officer. Captain Sranti, sir. Captain Sranti, have you read Imperial Edict 97? I've read the summary, sir. I cannot say I've read the entire text. I've had the training. I understand. It is long, legalistic, and complex. Suffice it to say, I have been activated under its provisions, and it makes me the ranking authority on this ship and in this system. You understand that, of course. Yes, sir. Good. You are not to report the contents of this meeting to anyone without my assent, not the Admiral, no one. Yes, sir. Good. We'll leave it at that for the moment. Sergeant Major, have you read Imperial Edict 97? Yes, sir. And the implementing regulations? Yes, sir. Tell me, in your own words, your understanding about quarantine agents. Ignore warrants for the moment. Sir, you are the Emperor's agent with his total confidence. You speak with his voice. I am to render you every assistance. Even if it's stupid, or suicidal, or without explanation? Yes, sir. Good. Captain, do you understand this situation similarly? Yes, sir. I turned to the three sergeants, asked them the same, and received the same answers. We are now operating under Imperial Edict 97. Share this information with no one. We will meet in the barracks at 0300. Meanwhile, I need the following. A flight jacket with the Imperial sunburst on the back, and my name preceded by the word agent above. What is my surname? Lagash, sir. Is he a good man? Good enough. Supply officer. Keeps to himself, mostly. I also need a chest plate with a front arm. Make that two, one lethal. Have them ready for me in the barracks. Wake tablets. Have them in my stateroom by twenty. We're done here, Captain. Send your regrets. You will not attend dinner tonight. Dinner in the wardroom was typical of naval formal dining. I sat as the guest of honor at the head of the table. The admiral at my right was a sparkling conversationalist, although he bridled a bit at not being the center of attention. I took control of the table conversation by emphasizing that I was sixteen years out of date. Who was the current emperor? How fared the empire? 
what was the latest fashion in Nashville's strategy. I got to know, however superficially, the staff officers, the exec, and a few of the department heads. After four hours, I begged off and retired for the night. But I didn't sleep. I had too much to do, and every sleep I took would bring me closer again to oblivion. The barracks meeting went well. 334-501, aboard B.B. Inarik, above Zerushigar Sector 0917, Deus, B-874-777-9, Agricultural World, Rich World. We met in a side compartment off the hangar deck of Inarik, Admiral and Immediate Staff. I am Agent Lagash of the Quarantine. I serve under Imperial Edict 97, which makes me the highest-ranking officer on this ship, in this squadron, in this system, indeed in this sector. My absolute power is confirmed by the silence of everyone present. I waited several beats just to make sure there were no objections. Gather round. I want you all to hear and understand me. We're going to talk, and you should be comfortable as we do. Commander Slee, please give your briefing as you gave it to me. When it was over... Thank you, Commander. I'll be blunt. This scheme is flawed. If any part of it fails, the entire plan fails. That world below us is infested with a parasite that makes people happy and then kills them. No quarantine or isolation or barrier can keep that sort of thing in or people who want it out. This world must be sterilized before it can infect the Empire. Nothing you will ever do is as important as what we will do in this mission. We moved to address the assembled crew on the hangar deck. I think the Admiral was surprised. We knew we had an agent on board. We had all been buzzing on what he would do. Smith called him a zombie. Trent told the tale of an agent who united a crew into an efficient team with magic words that no one could remember later. They called a mandatory mass assembly for mid-watch. They posted Marines on each deck, our console set on automatic. No one knew what he would say. No, that's not right. The Marines did. Every one of them wore gloves. He wore the body of Lieutenant Lagash. He stood on the platform and addressed us without notes. He began abruptly. I missed most of his first sentence. Most of us did. But no matter. What I heard was enough. Of the quarantine. He paused before this next statement. Nothing of value is without cost. Our mission is to save literally billions of lives. If we fail, those billions on dozens of worlds will die. We cannot let that happen. We will succeed. But there is a terrible cost that we face as well. The world below is Deus. It joined the interstellar community in the fifth millennium of Starflight happy for occasional trade and visitors. It is infested with a parasite that, if loosed on the Empire, will utterly destroy it. Our mission, our responsibility is to prevent that. This is not a telenovela. There is no last-minute surprise solution. Tomorrow we will scrub Deus to the bedrock. Tomorrow we will destroy the biomes of Deus and with them ninety million sofants. Make no mistake, they are people. Fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, sons and daughters, babies. Their lives and their lines will end forever. We have no choice. 
This is not a task we undertake lightly. We will push buttons and activate salvos and watch on display screens the terrifying fruits of our labors. We can even congratulate ourselves on a job well done. But years from now, you will wake in the night with nightmare visions of the people we have murdered so effortlessly. Trust me, I absolve you of all guilt. The Emperor himself will ratify your actions. But that will not be enough. There will be nightmares and hauntings. The spirits of the dead will cry out to you and you will have no answer. He paused as his words settled into our minds. After just the right interval, he continued, Nothing of value is without cost. There must be a cost to us for our actions. We must ourselves taste the pain and the loss that those below will suffer. We must ourselves bear a constant reminder of our participation and know that we ourselves have suffered with them. This time he sounded like he did not want to continue, but he did. Each of you will sacrifice the least digit of your non-dominant hand. Your commanders have bolt cutters and will begin the process now. They will make their sacrifice first. The pain of anticipation will be short-lived. The pain itself is momentary. The loss will stay with you forever, as your cost in achieving this mission of great value. The Admiral interrupted. This is barbaric. I will not have it. He stood towering over the agent in rage. The agent remained calm, turned to face him fully. He answered in a conversational voice, yet powerful beyond description. It is barbaric. We are going to kill ninety million people because we have no other answer. Would you not kill those below? Would you risk the very existence of the Empire? We have no choice, no alternative. There are no other options. The Admiral raged on. This is unnecessary. Our crew, our team, is trained and ready to do its duty. I countermand your order. Agent Lagasha's fingers twitched in marine battle language as he simultaneously spoke. Kill him. The admiral dropped, collapsed in an awkward heap, almost before the sounds of the guns could be heard. To our credit, only a few of us dropped to the deck. The rest stood transfixed by this drama. Louder now. I speak with the voice of the Emperor himself. Strip his rank insignia from his collar and send it to his family with the message that he disobeyed me. Take his finger. I will not allow him to avoid participating in our sacrifice. Then dump his body on the world below. Turning his attention back to us, the assembled crew, years from now you will understand. Begin. 222-514 Delphi Sector, 0709, Modesta, B-857-400-8, Non-Industrial World, Garden World, Pre-Agricultural World. I hated that agent. He was so calm and arrogant. He expected us to obey him without hesitation, and then literally gave us no choice. We operated like machines, targeting, launching, monitoring. Runners brought us tasteless meals to eat at our consoles. We slept like the dead. Some took pills to avoid the dreams. It took almost a month. I served in the Navy for another ten years, and I have come to realize that he did indeed have our best interests at heart. He could have just told us what to do, and I agree that I would be having nightmares now because of it. My lieutenant cut off my finger himself. By the time he got to me, he was no longer apologizing. 
He just did it. The faster for the med to apply a salve and give me a pain pill. It hurt more than I thought it would. I still shudder to think of the barbarity of it all. And yet, I understand today, in a way that words could never have told me then, we were going to do far worse to millions of people. It was right that we should suffer. For every one that we killed, there were ten or a hundred or a thousand that would live and never even know what we had done. 334-501, aboard B.B. Inarik, above Zerushigar Sector, 0917, Deus, B. 874777-9, Agricultural World, Rich World. The little officer scurried forward from the ranks, his tablet cradled in the crook of his arm. He was a bwap, a newt, the short reptilian sofant that seems to gravitate to obsessive-compulsive tasks like spreadsheets and databases. His diminutive size made his voice a natural squeak. Agent Lagash? I turned, ready to scowl at an appeal for some special treatment. Yes, what? I am Lieutenant Commander Epaba. He held up his hand to show its severed outermost finger. My digit will regrow. Is that allowed? I suppose that it is. But then my shared sacrifice is somehow less than the others? That is also true. Tell me your thoughts. May I give an eye instead? He proffered his stylus, held it out before him. I accepted it, turned it in my hands, evaluating against form and texture. Abruptly I straightened my arm to jab at the reptile's eye. Ipaba recoiled in a reflex action, his hand now covering his face as vitreous oozed through his fingers. I apologize, Agent. I had not expected this level of pain. I understand. The Emperor appreciates your sacrifice. Have that patched and return to your duties. Yes, Agent. As the Bwap moved away, I extended my hand and supported myself on a console edge. That was harder than I expected. 336-501, Zerushigar Sector 0917, Deus. B. 874777-9, Agricultural World, Rich World. The Galdanan family was only dimly aware of the crisis. Their focus was the farm, the hectares of crop that required constant attention. France was trying to catch the pesky pouncer that was raiding the fowl house. The fence didn't do much good. It somehow made it over or under or through to find a plump bird, shake it to death in a cloud of feathers, and then escape to a pleasant dinner. Here in the dead of night, Trance had his dark visors on and waited quietly upwind. Without warning, his visors blanked to safety mode, and he pulled them off to a middle-of-the-day light. There, just beyond the fence, was the pouncer ready to leap. Trance was raising his sand gun when the blast wave hit. Phyllis was worried something was wrong with her account. She had ordered a replacement translimiter for the drive, had received confirmation, and had spent the last two days almost non-stop getting the foundation brackets ready. Now, on her first real break, she checked and had no messages on the console. None. No Weasley marketing notes, no invitations to events, no reminders from the express service. Most of all, no dispatch confirmed from the parts company. She checked again, and it looked like the network was down. That was impossible. How could anyone do anything if the network was down? 
She took the long walk toward the open cargo hatch, wondering why it was so bright outside. She reached it just as the blast wave hit, tumbling the ship and her end over end across the tarmac. Although the ship did three full rotations, she was dead before the first completed. There was a string of slabs targeted on the isolated sea of fools. They would vaporize its contents and boil particles of bottom mud into the upper atmosphere, all part of the overall plan to generate global winter for decades to come. Something's wrong, the sense-up said under her breath as she touched a tab to alert her supervisor. The interaction was silent. The screen was highlighted to show the slabs targeting shore rather than sea. A supplemental screen showed the original target point and its undulating and eddying pattern of surface fish as they darted about, faster than it seemed they should. The supervisor retargeted a backup stream to impact several minutes later. They hit as directed and the exception incident was marked closed. First Empire Knowledge In the first millennium of starflight, the bold, foolhardy Villani ventured out in their immense star jumpers, huge hulls packed with fuel and drives, marvels of engineering and science. Looking back, we see those ships as primitive, inefficient, bulky, crude. With eyes that were accustomed to ships that took generations to travel between the stars, they were marvels. They traveled not at a tenth of the speed of light, not at light speed itself, but a hundred times, almost two hundred times faster than photons. Explorers could visit more than one world in a lifetime and still return to make their reports. Investors could expect profits. Scientists could expand their knowledge and their reputations. The species could expand. Even better, no one else knew the secret. The star jumpers visited systems, stars, and worlds. They reached a thousand planets and discovered answers to classic questions of science. They filled to overflowing the data banks of the First Empire. There was in those early years another type of knowledge. The unconfirmed, the incredible, the unbelievable. Stories of monsters and marvels, strangeness and strangers. These reports were problematic. Hard to believe, hard to prove, hard to understand. It was easiest to laugh and then dismiss or ignore them. Who could possibly believe stories of monsters that swarmed in the vacuum of deep space, of worlds where time stood still, of sirens that called men to their dooms, of artificial planetoids in the depths of the outer oort? What reasonable scientist would believe the weird, the occult, the unproven, or the undocumented? More than one scientist was embarrassed to find that supposed fact was really the writings of the deranged, or alien children's morality tales, or startlingly realistic entertainment fictions. This mass of nonsense had a name, the Nikik Lur. Literally, the words meant the false knowledge. This false knowledge was a source of constant confusion, and to the First Empire, the obvious answer was to suppress it. It was systematically removed from the databases. References were tagged unproven or fictional. More than that, they were often scrambled or deliberately corrupted. Over time, over generations, over centuries, this forbidden other knowledge was very thoroughly eradicated. The information networks were all the better for it. And yet there were always the few who must be contrary, and some of those contraries had great power and great resources. The Quran's palace on Navalia became one such contrary. 
a secret repository maintained by its hereditary staff even long after the First Empire fell. The estate was self-sustaining, surrounded by agricultural lands, worked by serfs, managed by a dedicated set of families. Of those, only a few actually knew about the collection, and fewer still saw any real value. Of course, it had no value. Its curators were weird mystics with strange ideas and distorted concepts of importance and reality. 011-502 The Naval Base at Zerushigar Sector 1410, Sternbach, AAA5944-B, Fluid Oceans, High Population, Industrial World, Sector Capital. The first ships of the fleet had just arrived in system in a series of jump flashes as they individually shed energy. Arrivals would continue over the next 16 hours. The naval base and the starport sensors knew immediately, indeed the arrivals were expected, but to households and businesses and families, this was the first hint of homecoming. They started receiving alerts almost immediately. Crews on liberty meant money to be spent, spouses and friends to be reunited, celebrations. Ships in port meant supplies to be sold, services to be rendered, data dumps, database updates. This system would be a busy place for weeks to come. Slintern House was aflutter with excitement. Servants scurried here and there, putting art and accessories in their proper places, adjusting lighting levels, polishing imagined scuffs, so that all would be perfect when the Admiral arrived. The Lady Slintern remained in her chambers, primping and preparing herself. There would be a social world of receptions and parties and audiences, many of them dominated by her husband, but many focused on her as the lady of the house. These were exciting times indeed. Hours passed with no word, no messages, no alerts to Slintern House, and the lady began to entertain some slight fret. How unlike the Marquis Slintern not to send some signal or greeting, some indication of the social responsibilities that were coming. The coded signals between the flagship and the administration center at the naval base created their own difficulties. Admiral Slintern was more than a ranking naval officer. He was a Marquis. The news could not simply be released. The naval base had other admirals, and the next in line gladly assumed the mantle of command. Lesser Admiral Tenabula was but a baronet, although it was clear in his own mind that would change soon. He also knew that with great power comes great responsibility. He could not delegate this particular task. His black ground car, preceded and followed by blue security vehicles, drove through the primary gate at Slintern House and stopped precisely at the grand entrance. Footman opened doors and stood respectfully stiff. The baronet emerged flanked by officers in gray and officers in white. Tell the lady to come here. No one had time to object. One raced up the grand staircase. Another inquired about refreshments, only to be rebuffed. After a time, the lady appeared at the top of the staircase. How may I help you, gentlemen? Come down here. I will not shout my message to you. At last, arrogant, even angry, the lady reached the bottom of the stairs to confront the baronet. He was enjoying this. She deserved it even more than the marquis. He held out the small tray containing the double sunburst insignia that identified an admiral of the Imperial Navy. He had been careful not to soil his hands by touching it. 
When she picked it up, he discarded the tray into a corner. He used no identifier or honorific. The pronoun was sufficient. He disobeyed the emperor. His title and his fiefs are forfeit. Be out of here by dark. Three hours away. Not the traditional morning. By dark. The public would know by then. They would enjoy it. They enjoyed seeing the mighty brought low. Especially the cruel mighty. She started to ask questions, but he ignored her. He turned to the house manager. By dark. Although the baronet left in his ground car, the two security vehicles remained. A few minutes before the sunset, a car emerged, and the lady left with two bags she had to carry herself. Nova Evacuation I awoke to crowd noises and jostling, and despite my disorientation, opened my eyes immediately. Before me were the rows of the stadium, but strangely my back was to the field. I started walking, climbing the shallow risers, swimming against the flow, until I reached the concourse. At last free of the masses, I stepped to a supportive railing and paused. What caught my eye were a set of broad sliding doors which I recognized as lifts that immediately implied to me other levels, entrances, offices, exits. I was drawn to it. As I approached, I could not ignore the prominent numeral writ large on its face. Four. The doors parted as I approached to reveal a large chamber some five double arms lengths wide and long and two man heights tall. I stepped in alone and the doors closed. They immediately reopened to blackness and I noted a panel that now said five. They closed and reopened to an actinic glare that actually hurt my eyes. Light and dark played against me as forms moved beyond those doors. The panel said six. They closed again, reopening to a dull red glow and slow-moving shadows beyond. The doors this time remained open for one of those shapes to enter, some sort of sofont with headless shoulders, a circle of elbowless arms atop a skirt of kneeless legs. Etiquette dictated that we ignore each other, and we did as the doors closed and reopened to a howl of strong, cold winds. It exited, and the doors reclosed as the panel number changed to 81. I must remember that I started at 4, I thought. I would hate to be lost. And so the doors opened to familiar crowds, as the panel said 4, and I exited. 091-502, aboard BKF Basiri, above Fornas Sector 2404, Kulabisha, B68799A-9, Garden World, High Population. I stood in front of the assembled crew, not just the line officers, but nearly every single officer and spacer on board. Consoles had been set on automatic. There was one officer on the bridge, but I had spoken with her in the presence of the captain before everyone else assembled here. The cargo deck was the only place with physically enough room. After an introduction and a briefing by the exec, I started. That star out there will Nova in six months. It will scour the world below of all life. Nothing we can do will stop it. This world has a population of five billion. Do the math. A thousand-ton ship can carry about fifty people and five hundred tons of cargo. Let's stress life support to the breakpoint. Makeshift many-decker cots. Doses of calmatives. Minimal food. Abysmal sanitation. Maybe we can fit fifty people per ton. 
crowding to the very limit of endurance. We can even house some people in unused fuel tankage. So, 800 tons of capacity, 50 people per ton, 4,000 people per ship per two weeks. Before that star explodes, that ship can save 50,000 people. We need 100,000 ships, each making a dozen runs over six months. That will not happen. We cannot save them all. How many can we save? Let's say we get a hundred ships, maybe a thousand ships. Drain the star lines for this entire sector. That saves one percent of the population. The rest will die. So will the biomes, animals, plants, culture, goods, precious metals, everything. I've already made a decision that nothing matters but lives. Our mission is to save lives, as many as possible. We have 15 million seconds before this star explodes and everyone dies. If we work hard, we may save a hundredth of the population, 50 million people, three people a second. But we face a terrible responsibility. Who do we save? Who? The best? The brightest? The richest? The average? A cross-section? Who will choose? Who has the right to choose? That responsibility lies with me. I must make the choice. Before I speak, you must all accept my decisions, however arbitrary or ill-conceived. You must obey me in this. Your oath to the Imperium requires it. Ultimately, the Emperor will ratify my actions and absolve you of any blame or fault. Do as I say. Speak up now, or your silence marks acquiescence. Anyone? Speak now. Silence. No one spoke. No one dared to speak. The responsibility was too daunting. They were all glad that I had the responsibility. Fine. We choose as nature does, randomly. Those we encounter, we save. Many will die. Some will live on a new world to reestablish this society, this species. We'll have to kill some to save others. Kill those who disrupt the process. Kill those who try to take over, or jump the line, or just make trouble because every one of those problems means delay, because every second of delay kills three people who could have been saved. Your weapons are lethal. Your mission is paramount. Every single person you encounter is already dead, except for those you save. If necessary for the mission, kill the others. It is a mercy. They will be dead in six months anyway. Later I met with squadron staff. I want to relieve the suffering of the rest. We have two strategies, hope and palliatives. Alert the authorities. There is a rescue fleet to arrive at the very last moment to carry away the loyal functionaries who have so faithfully served us. There will be more than enough hulls to take them and their significant others. Mark it ultimate secret. Start a remedy project, modifying the Maison gun system defenses. Loose barrage after barrage of calculated fire into the star. Modify and improve the guns and fire again. Mark this secret penultimate. Someone will find out no matter what we do. Meanwhile, loosen the rules of society. Calmatives, relaxants, entertainments. Release stipends to the poor and give them access to consumer goods. Require only that they be orderly. I visited every single crew member in the first three days. I repeated the same words in conversation after conversation and they believed me because they wanted to. You are doing a good job. 
The emperor himself will hear of your work. Thank you. Anna Plant Lagash, Report 1 Video image of a human woman with dark hair drawn back in a bun, her jaw showing a trace of pudge. Blue eyes focus on the camera lens, but shift slightly as they read from prompter notes. She speaks with a meticulous standard Anglic pronunciation. Date stamp 281-531, Report 1 This piece rambles. If you are impatient, have your consul synopsize for an executive summary. I was an educator. I worked in a publicly funded school for adolescents, teaching appropriate social roles through an examination of Anglic literature. We read books and graphic novels. We viewed dramas, whether recorded or live, telenovelas, animations, and serials. We engaged in game-playing, ludo, mo, and even tabletop. We studied wafer entertainments in all their varieties. My subtext was always an examination of societal roles, how to be a good consumer, a good producer, a responsible citizen, a valuable employee, a compatible partner. We had teaching segments on stewardship of the planet, support of the greater good, and moral principles for social harmony. I took the seasonal exams along with my students. I strive to improve my scores on a year-to-year basis, both as an example to my students and because I believed in our society. I met Rents when he began his job as an administrator at our school. That was on Canorb. He had just finished his term in the Imperial Navy and came to our world to make his life. We grew to like each other, fell in love, created a marriage partnership, had our allowed two children, raised them to adulthood, and we grew old together. Four years short of retirement, Rents was diagnosed with terminal, incurable cerebral degeneration. As his faculties diminished, he was forced into an early retirement. As they diminished further, I retired early as well. The counselor advised euthany, either single or double, but I refused. With our reduced means, I surrendered our many-roomed apartment and moved to a few-roomed apt in one of the arcologies. In exchange for our income streams, we received secure housing, tolerable meals in the communal cafeterias, and even occasional outings. Rents, although he remained physically strong, had difficulty coping and found solace in an unending series of participation events through his consul. I paid the subscription fees through a make-work job staffing a monitoring kiosk. It was the least I could do for my life partner. For the next three years, our lives were in suspension as we waited for him to die a natural death. One night, Rince awoke. He normally slept through the night, and so I awoke as well. He moved to the console on the far side of the room, and I expected he would start an interactive session. Instead, as I watched, he manipulated the screens and touchpads looking at data packs, maps, charts, and a variety of information graphics. He returned to bed perhaps an hour later. Rents, are you good? He responded with a verbal non-word, and after several minutes, he spoke quietly. Did I ever tell you what I did in the Navy? He had told me only vaguenesses. On our world, few of us ventured into space, and even fewer returned. 
Polite company did not speak much of a life in the greater empire. I had never asked, and he told me little. Only generally. You said you used a wafer and awoke with no memory of what happened. That you lost a finger. They gave you a promotion, transferred you to a naval base, and that you mustered out soon after. He started in. I can tell you what happened. I served on a capital, a big ship that guards the empire. I was only a small cog in a big machine, responsible mostly for supplies that kept people alive and well. I was offered a chance to serve the empire. They gave me a wafer and I took it. There was a crisis, a system infested with something that, if it got out, would destroy the biomes on dozens of worlds. I controlled an operation. I made decisions that scrubbed that world. At a cost of many dead, I saved the lives of a thousand times more. Literally, there are billions alive yet today because of that project. That wafer put a different personality in my head, a trained expert who knew how to act and what to do in a crisis. After about 30 days, that personality evaporated, and Rint's personality re-expressed itself. This hasn't happened before. That trained personality has come back. I'm not Rents. I'm him. I physically shook. I think he thought it fear because he simply waited me out. I'm not sure what it was, but the feeling passed. It wasn't grief. I had felt grief at the loss of my Rents long before. Nevertheless, my eyes were moist, and I dabbed them with my night blouse. He continued. This hasn't happened before. This may last only a day or a week. Most probably it will last a month, and then I'll evaporate again. Maybe Rince will come back. You have nothing to fear from me. Let's wait and see. Meanwhile, I need to make a report. He swung his feet to the floor and made his way back to the console. There was the final confirmation that he was not my Rince. Tell me your name. Anna. It's not like he replaced Rents. Rents wasn't there, hadn't been there for many months. The next day, he said, let's try to be normal. Call me Rents. Treat me like I am Rents. I went about my routine. I cleaned and arranged things, laid out his clothes, showed him where things were. I left him to his own devices while I staffed the monitoring kiosk and usually returned to find him at the console reading news and history. We enjoyed our meals together, despite the lackluster food and prosaic presentation. I told him about our history together, and what I knew of this world, and what less that I knew of the universe beyond. After the second day, he gave me a message capsule. I momentarily thought, where did he get that, but did not say it aloud. He said, when my personality evaporates, dictate a note about how long I was present and then send it off. It's all pre-addressed and prepaid. You just need to give it to the express office. At day 31, after we had gone through our morning routine, he said, I haven't evaporated. I expect to be here for quite a while. I need to travel. I want you to come with me. Where? Does it matter? I suppose not. Living here was waiting to die. We could wait to die anywhere. 
We left the next day with only the clothes on our backs, a few identity documents, and a book with my library of Anglic literature. By travel, I thought he meant regional or perhaps continental. The fast transport could get us anywhere on Canorb in a few days. We could see the vistas of the Grand Desert, the eternal mists of the western islands, maybe even ice flows in the north. We started out across the agricultural region and its endless fields of grain. That night, I immersed myself in a 4th century Nurstian classic about hope. The next morning, we arrived at the starport and I panicked. I had never been off-world. I never intended to go off-world. I had not expected that travel meant off-world. He held my hand tightly and said all would be right. I felt for a moment like I still had my rents with me, and I followed him meekly. I don't know where he got the money. We lived on 16,000 credits a year, our reduced retirement annuities, and we saw almost none of that. It went straight to the arcology. Our disposable balances averaged a couple hundred at any one time, and we had an emergency fund of perhaps a thousand. Our two passages together cost 14,000 credits. I don't know where the money came from. Perhaps we would spend some months in debtor's prison before we died. Space travel seems exciting, and in the beginning it is. The wheeled people mover carried us to a sleek jump liner on the far side of the field. We went directly to our staterooms and settled in. At the ten-minute announcement, Rents and I made our way to the lounge to watch liftoff on the big screens. They showed forward, aft, down, and even a remote view of us slowly lifting into Canorb sky. Over the next ten hours, we cruised to the jump point. The screen showed our receding world. The steward provided commentary and answered questions. He moderated a game in which we used our seat screens to find specific spectral stars or gas giants or even other ships in the trade lanes. He awarded prizes in the form of plastic chips redeemable for specialty foods in the buffet line. We were traveling middle. The stewards fawned over the high passengers who had priority at meals, and only they rotated through the seatings at the captain's table. We served ourselves at a buffet of tolerable foods, although they were somewhat better than the arcology's fare. After about a half a day, we reached a safe point beyond Canorb's 100-diameter limit, and the captain announced jump in 10, 9, 8 seconds. At 2, the lights dimmed, a tradition on this particular line, and at 0, we transitioned to jump space. The clock timers reset to zero and started counting immediately. Sometime between 150 and 186 hours, we would break out in the Sashrakusha system, two parsecs almost seven light years distant. The purser wandered through the lounges with a pool board, selling ten credit chances on the correct pick for the breakout. Rents gave me a coin, and I picked my birthday, 166. We now had a week in jump. The viewports were closed to protect us from the sanity-challenging chaos of jump space. Onboard clocks would slowly adjust to Sashwakusha time. After a day, after our morning meal, after about a simple exercise, Rents asked me to teach him Anglic literature. He must have planned this. He produced a book I didn't know he had and asked for me to get him started. 
In all my years as a teacher, Rents had never asked about literature. I was touched. The study of Anglic literature is the study of society itself. Writings and entertainments reflect what people, be they the elite or the masses, think and feel. Good literature resonates with them. Bad literature fails. What is good in some eras is bad in others, and the converse. I knew the theories and the curricula, but I would be teaching an educated adult rather than an adolescent. I needed to adjust my approach. I started with Gilgamesh. We watched a classic video from the second century. He already knew the story, but I enjoyed emphasizing key points, stopping the display, replaying sequences, and noting early events that presaged later resolutions. He who saw, knew, experienced, understood all, lived in the temple of the sky god and the love goddess, and wanted to know more. Rince was more concerned with plot. He wanted to know what happened next, and when it didn't seem logical, he complained or even argued with the screen. He pointed out illogical sequences that I just accepted as story mechanisms. I, on the other hand, was concerned with character, specifically how each filled roles in society. I sorted characters into their roles, good or bad citizens, pleasant or unpleasant companions, responsible or wasteful stewards. The negative examples were as important to me as the positive. We had lively discussions. I found Rents could make strong points without alienating me. He found I could argue with both logic and emotion, and I think he was impressed. Time passed swiftly. Onboard time had adjusted to strike midnight when the clock timer hit 168. If all went perfectly, we would break out at midnight and arrive at the starport at noon. As it happened, the hull started rumbling at 2100 ship time, and we broke out at 2219. The timer showed 166.19. Rents smiled and said that was a good omen. I wondered why but the steward began distributing celebratory beverages, and I did not have the chance to ask. Later, Renz signaled the purser with a wave. Show him your chip. I retrieved the 166, and the fellow paid over a demand card with a glowing 100 credits on its face. The high passengers debarked first. A second mover fetched us, and it lurched across the tarmac, buffeted by gray winds and grit. We had only our hand items, and so we stood at the front of the conveyor. Once it mated with the terminal, we stepped through, greeted by a whiff of noxious vapor trapped between the protective doors before they opened. Sash Rakusha Down was a whirl of activity. Many people, many sulfants, glaring holos, strange smells. Rince looked around, saw something, and started off. Then he stepped back took my hand, and said not to let go. We bumped into people. They bumped into us. No one seemed to notice or care. This was so unlike home. Were all starports like this? Eventually we stopped in a calm spot outside the rush, and I said, Tell me what we're doing. There's no reason to act without explanation. We are traveling together. He acknowledged fault. I am unaccustomed to this. Forgive me. 
I shall do better. And he did. He narrated the remainder of our walk, pointing out shops that catered to specific sofans, occupations, even avocations. We stopped at one, and he enticed me to spend my winnings on a close-fitting hat with a short bill. He said I was now officially an adventurous and deserved to look the role. I blushed and picked a red one. We eventually reached massive blast doors, uncharacteristic of the remainder of the terminal. Lasered into the steel was a person-sized insignia consisting of upright sword and surrounding wreath. Rince identified it as the seal of the Imperial Navy. You will need to wait here. It's safe, but don't venture beyond those shops there. Go with no one. If I send someone, he will tell you that I sent for you and will know both your name and mine. I waited for an hour. Left, bought a drink with energy and electrolytes, looked at some trinkets in a display, and returned. After two hours, Rents appeared and said all was prepared. I gave him a look and he stopped. Oh, sorry. The Navy has arranged for a ship for us. We are going to Vland. We'll leave later this week. Meanwhile, we'll stay at the TAS Hotel. Almost a sector away, the home world of the Valani people, the center of the First Empire, my mind wobbled. We checked into the hotel, a tall tower defying the corrosive mists of this world. Its effort was less than successful. Long drools of corrosion stained its facade, and the transpex of the room was scratched by wind-blown grit. All outside was shades of gray, the buildings, the clouds, the sky, the ground, the sea. Rents noticed and closed the interior shutters. Ignore all that. We'll be on our way in a few days. Rents, I said, we need to talk. I don't know what is happening. You aren't communicating. Just tell me. His shoulders slumped slightly. I understand. I apologize. He hesitated, clearly thinking through what to say. We'll be on our ship day after tomorrow. Can details wait until then? I agreed. Then let's see what this world has to offer. We saw a locally staged production of one of Nurse's scripts, the same one on Hope that I had just read. I enjoyed it. We walked the Grand Promenade and saw the only trees that grew on this world. We peeked into the door of a Varga bar, but my courage failed me and Rince did not insist. Moments later, we saw a fight break out and several dogs thrown into the street. We strolled a balcony encircling the TAS and watched the sun rise for local morning. The next day, I spent in our room. Rents had considerately told me he needed to be away making preparations. He warned me not to leave the room. I could order food to be delivered. I obeyed. He returned later that night, greeted me amiably, and went to sleep almost immediately. The next morning, we're ready. Gather your things. I checked the corners of the room, looked into the compartments, donned my new red adventuress's cap, and followed. We passed through a warren of tunnels deep beneath the tarmac. I smelled noxious fumes, lubricants, strangenesses. We passed occasional uniformed spacers and technicians. They ignored us. 
Rince walked like he owned the place. Eventually, we reached a shaft, an airlock, a connector and another airlock, and we were inside a ship. Later, I came to see that it was a strange ship, that at the time, all ships were strange to me. In an alcove, we were greeted by aliens, sofans, tripods with striped skins and booming voices. Rents introduced them, and their names washed over me, Born, Trull, Flaw, Flink, and others. They acted happy to see me, deferential, eager to please. Perhaps I just did not understand their non-human ways. Born would take you to the lounge. I thought that one was Trull. I would have to try harder. I'll meet you there in a few minutes. The lounge was utilitarian, not at all like the jump liner. As I waited, I saw the ship's nameplate and read its cryptic details. INS Argushi TF-HA-63 1,000 tons, nominal. Laid down 005-414 of Alandian Yard 2. First flight. 273-414, blonde. Argushi was Vellani for hidden truths. Sometimes it meant sacred knowledge. The word had its origins in ancient myth, the valuable thing early seafarers sought, only to find that it was goodwill rather than gold. Rince spoke from behind me. I picked this one partly because of the name. Our other choices were Bird That Eats Carrion and Dangerous Thoughts. Well chosen. They just gave this to you? It was an auxiliary in long-term storage. They weren't using it. I knew some override codes. And the crew, they come with the ship? They want to travel to their home world. When we get there, they'll muster out and we'll find some replacements. Oh, this is for you. He handed me a small silver pen a many-rayed son. This makes you a brevet lieutenant in the Imperial Navy Auxiliary. You outrank everyone but Born and Truel and me. He told me I was now the astrogator. It was a formality. Someone else made the first course calculations, and we jumped within several hours. I learned my craft with OJT. Truel knew astrogation and had a gentle style. He explained how to consult the astrogation console, plan a course line from one system to another, make provision for strange anomalies. During our weekend jump, I divided my time between learning astrogation basics and teaching rents Anglic literature. Time flew. Truel also schooled me in the finer details of astrogation. He spun stories of early astrogators and the challenges they faced learning to plan course lines that missed rogue worlds and ice chunks, checking and double-checking for math errors that could strand a ship deep between the stars. He told me that we shuttered our vision ports to protect us from the nightmares that looking at jump space could bring. He confided that not everyone suffered from the visions, but it was better to be safe, that he had seen a spacer struck mad when a shutter malfunctioned. His lessons were not lost on me. I saw jump space as a terrible force, and my responsibilities were not to be lightly held. By the time we reached Valand, 
I was proficient in telling the consul how to calculate a course. Good astrogators could calculate with a tablet. Great ones could do it in their heads. I ranked probably fair. Rents became proficient in identifying social traits in literature. The solid characters that prudent people settled down with, the users that gave stories action but were examples of traits in the negative, like my students before him, he mused aloud about where he fit in the spectrum. Strangely, our time at Vland was short and unremarkable. We remained in orbit, docked at the high port, while Rents and Truel ventured to the surface. They returned the next day, and we left immediately. Our new destination was Otseko in Lishan, the tripod's homeworld. It would take us perhaps half a year. I learned more of my new craft. I instituted a book club. I posted a title on the network just after the jump and we discussed it twice, several days later. Rents was enthusiastic, the tripods less so. Bourne did not understand why Roger did not expose Hester immediately. Truel said he understood, but clearly didn't. Flau did understand, tried to explain it to Bourne, and eventually decided he didn't understand. At one point, we could have refueled at the local gas giant but Rents directed our ship to the main world of the system, a deserted globe with varied biomes but neither sulfants nor indigenes. While the crew maneuvered the maws of huge hoses to the banks of the river, Rents took me to the edge of the purplish forest. He gave me an ocular overlay, a gray curve that covered my eyes. From within, all appeared the same except for a bluish tinge. All the while, he talked to me in a confident tone. Here. This is a snap ten. You hold it here, like this. I had never touched a gun in my life. Notice this clicking part at the back. It won't work unless you grip it tightly. If that isn't pushed down, it won't fire, even if you drop it, or throw it, or bump it. This is the front. It shoots out little needles at half the speed of light. He laughed to himself as he said that particular fact. When you hold this, with a grip compressed like this, you see a dot out there somewhere, see? That's where it will hit if you shoot. But there's a safety. It's body-fenced. If you point at a person wearing a crew badge, the dot is green. Safe. It won't shoot. Everywhere else, the dots read. Deadly. Shoot and it kills. He was gentle as he spoke. I know you are accustomed to calling an enforcer when you need help, to delegating the protection of your safety to someone else. On our journey, there will be no one else on whom you can depend, not even me. In fact, I would depend on you more than you know. This gun is just a tool. You carry it as I carry mine, because there are forces in the universe that do not care about you or your health or your life. They are dedicated to winning the evolutionary battle, and in the process they will trample everything in their path. This tool is an equalizer, our own evolutionary advantage. I searched my memory of literature and found comforting examples of roles such as this as I felt the snap-10's weight in my hand.
Sakhalin. The breeze was bone-chilling, and I shivered as I opened my eyes. The stadium was sparsely attended today, where normally we were shoulder to shoulder with a buzz of conversation. Row after row had only one spectator each. In a few places there were clusters of parents and children. I made my way to the railing to see through dark clouds to the wind-swept surface below. It was lifeless. There were occasional signs of once-upon-a-time life, fallen squat trunks of massively strange trees, mats of purplish grasses blown by galish winds, but all were frozen in time by a lack of eaters and reducers. One of the parents saw me, said something to his companions, and came in my direction. This is all that is left of Navalia. I knew somehow that was his name for Deus. Once this whole section was filled with our ancestors, our children, and our children's children. Navalia won't have people again for ten thousand years, if that, if ever. Our ancestors have left in despair. The children have just faded into, he shrugged, nothing. Did he know me? Did I know him? He answered my unasked question. I am Ansha. Your ship made an inquiry about the records at the Quran's palace. There wasn't time. He spoke without emotion, calm, articulate. Do you see that small cluster there? My family. We have not yet given up hope. Those in the front are our grandchildren-to-be. We talk to them every day about their future and their responsibilities. He had a purpose in this appeal, and he went right to it. The Quran's palace has records, physical records, the Nikik Lur. They were maintained by the hereditary staff, myself, my family. I know that you want that knowledge. He did? Did I know that I wanted that knowledge? My grandchildren over there are embryos stored in the vault. They can yet live. On another world, I know, but they can live. When you recover the star charts, you can recover my grandchildren. He paused again. He pleaded, Please. 225-530 aboard BMF Polilis above Reft Sector 3029 Sakhalin B857876-A Garden World Pre-Agricultural Pre-High Population Ravens pecked my eyes. They deafened me with their screeching. The stink of their wet feathers offended me. Their claws raked my shoulders and arms. Every fifth one was snow-white. I know. I counted them to be certain. I waved my arms, and they scattered so I could see just a bit, the officers standing on the bridge. I tried to speak. Who here is senior? But their beaks had taken their toll on my tongue. I tasted blood in the back of my throat. I strained to hear the answer to my question, but no one spoke. I strained against the pain and stood straighter to do my duty despite, but it was too much and there was black. Lieutenant Shigili took the wafer casually. He used skill sets all the time, and he expected this to be much the same. He was cocky, pleased that the admiral had chosen him. He didn't understand that his selection meant he was expendable. They told him to stand over there by the console. Jameson had seen this before. He whispered to his companion, Grint, It's amazing the transformation that comes over the agent. The lieutenant closed his eyes and pressed the wafer into place. His arm slowly went back to his side, and he just stood there. 
Suddenly he crouched and squirmed and flapped his arms, scraping his biceps against his face and ears. His entire body twisted in strange ways. He said something no one could quite understand. And then gagged, choked, spit, braced in a rictus, and then just collapsed as if every bone in his body had dissolved. Jameson whispered, That's not supposed to happen, as several Marines dashed forward. The executive officer raised his voice. Something's gone wrong. Take him to the clinic. Wait. Retrieve the wafer. Jameson, you're up. 225-530 aboard BMF Colillis above Reft Sector 3029 Sakhalin, B857876-A, Garden World, Pre-Agricultural, Pre-High Population. I awoke to a crew that acknowledged me senior. Before me was a Commodore with her lieutenant commander as briefer. We orbited a world with a high population, a comfortable society, and through no fault of their own, a rogue AI in its world-spanning network. The crew had reacted to the threat immediately and appropriately, stopped liftoffs, prohibited landings, cut all communications. The Commodore and her staff had a plan, emp the network to cleanse it of the rogue. I reviewed the briefing and made a few suggestions, a series of timed imps to corner the AI and then ensure it was dead, some gravity drops of printed references to help the locals survive the loss of their networks. There was no point in waiting. We acted without warning. One moment they were a functioning technology founded on electronics and computers. The next moment they weren't. They lost maybe 1% of the population because control systems failed. They would lose another 10% in the next year. On the other hand, their society would rally and return, newly based on analog controls and mechanical devices. Careful monitoring over the next five generations would make sure the AI wasn't lurking in some dormant circuit or forgotten memory. Eventually the world would return to the interstellar community. But for now they were quarantined, red-zoned, prohibited, forbidden. I was pleased that we lost as few as we did. It felt strange that I could be pleased to kill only 200 million people. I spent the next two days meeting with Guadron staff officers. The personnel officer needed direction on long-term staffing. These ships would be here for generations, rotating in and out in five-year watches. The intelligence officer needed to set up proper monitoring, both electronically and with over-the-ground drone patrols, and all the while making sure they were not contaminated by AI spores. The operations officer needed to plot out the details of who did what, why, when, and how. The M strike was over, and the tedious details rose in importance. The logistics officer faced supply problems simply because they could not depend on the local system for anything. They took the first steps to establish a farming colony on a nearby world. Medical told me that my wafer had malfunctioned in the previous host. He had been nominally and hormonally male, but genetically female. They expected him to recover. The civil affairs officer needed to know how to present this crisis to neighboring systems, revealing enough of the danger to keep them away yet avoiding attracting looters and gawkers. Finally, the information officer needed to make sure systems were in place to protect against AI breakout and infiltration. I met with him last. Commander Darmukid was a manager rather than a tech. He could tell people what to do, but not how. On one particular line item, his assistant volunteered. Sticky would know how to do that, and they assigned the task to him. We went on. I made mental note to seek Sticky out. We had dinner two nights later. 
Dickie was nervous, and I tried to put him at ease. Once I got him going, I could hardly stop his babbling. He loved his particular niche in technology, and he was good at it. Although people wanted results, they rarely stopped to listen to him, and they never wanted to hear why some approach was better than another. On the other hand, although I wanted something, I was also genuinely interested. I had spent my last twenty months of consciousness addressing literally world-shattering crises, and something as mundane as Starship Information Networks was a pleasant diversion. I enjoyed myself, and I think Sticky did as well. 230-530 aboard BMF Colillis above Ref Sector 3029 Sakhalin B857876-A Garden World Pre-Agricultural Pre-High-Population We met again the next day. After some pleasantries, I asked for some help. Can you trigger wafer activation for a specific system? Sure. You mean... If the ship enters the VLAN system, you want to be activated so you can visit the archives? Not exactly, but close enough, I thought. While I said, exactly, you understand precisely what I need. But not just this ship. Every ship. Sure, I can set up an astrofence. I know how to do this ship. It's just a simple instruction file. All I need is the override code. He leaned closer and whispered, I have the override codes for this ship. He reverted to a more noble tone. When ships return to base, they sync with the base network and with each other. Ultimately, the files make it to depot and propagate through the other fleets as well. Over time, maybe a couple years, everyone is synced with everyone else. It just takes override codes. The captain decides what's safe or appropriate to sync with other ships. He periodically reviews stuff and approves it. The safety interlocks look for override codes to assure itself there isn't an unapproved phage or worm or like here, a rogue AI. Let's get started, then. I want an astrofence set up? He said it was no problem, and he would ping me when it was ready. An hour later, my comm pinged. With him at his console and me at a tablet, we identified the systems to astrofence, basically every crisis I had handled. I thought I remembered them all. Now, when a ship entered one of those systems, it would declare a potential crisis and activate my wafer. Sure, he said. That takes care of this ship, but it won't sink without the override. I have that. Sure, then just key it in, in the red bar at the bottom. It'll be a moment, I said. I need to figure it out. What's today's date? Long ago, my training included the basic formula for quarantine overrides. Theoretically, they worked anywhere that used the Master Naval Operating System, which would include not just the fleet, with the scout service, naval surface installations, probably a lot of imperial bureaucracies. We, that is our little class of five subjects, made them up and entered the code into the system ourselves. I suppose someone might know them by now, or maybe they had been deleted at some point between then and now. They were intended to be valid until the turn of the millennium. Our original code concept was today's three-digit day with leading zeros, the power of today's three-digit year. No need for leading zeros. Make it the other way around if today is even. Take the first ten digits. Then someone commented that an observer might intuitively understand the code if they saw us look up the date. So we added plus one to each digit, without carrying. It took me several minutes to confirm the calculation. Now, I'm ready. Ding! It confirmed it. This should work. 
By the way, he volunteered, you know this is relatively easy because there is already an astrofence process subsystem in place. Oh? For example, unless we are a core sector ship, our guns won't work in core sector. It's an anti-mutiny, no, anti-insurrection precaution. That must make the Emperor feel safer. Sticky said he couldn't imagine the precaution ever being needed. 225-530, aboard BMF Colillis, above Reft Sector 3029, Sakhalin, B857876-A, Garden World, Pre-Agricultural, Pre-High Population. I want to thank you for your help. Sure, it's nothing, just my job, and... I interrupted his polite demurral by putting my hand on his shoulder. Look at me. I am not Jameson. This is his body, but I am not him. I took his chin firmly in my hand and forced his eyes to look into mine. Listen, you have done for me, you have done for the Emperor himself, a great favor, and we appreciate it. But you must never speak of this. You cannot tell anyone. Say you understand. I released my grip. Don't nod. Say yes, you understand. Sure, yes, I understand. Good. I held out a beribboned medallion, the service medal that everyone called the XS, the Exemplary Service. Anyone who could put his cap on straight got one after a couple years. Dickie probably had three or four already. He reached to accept it. I held up my other hand and bid him wait. From my tunic pocket I withdrew a wafer, showed it to him briefly, inserted it into the suspension ribbon of the medal, and handed it over to him. There will come a time, some day, when you are certain that the Emperor himself appreciates your work. On that day, when you arrive at your new job, you must use this wafer yourself. There may be danger. There may be reward. You may not understand what is happening. None of that matters. You must not fail me, us. Tell me again that you understand. Sure. Yes, Agent Jameson, I understand. Then you are dismissed. Anna Plant Lagash Report 2 Video image of a human woman with dark hair under a red-billed cap decorated with an astrogator's badge pinned on upside down. She conveys a casual confidence. Date stamp 266-532, Report 2. I am now an astrogator. Who would have thought? Upon arrival at Otseku, rents discharged the crew, paying them their accumulated wages and updating their naval records. He insisted that they remain reservists and told them they were valuable components in the Emperor's Navy. They listened with little attention, intent on returning to their homes and old neighborhoods, and anxious to be on their ways. Argushi hung in orbit as Rents shuttled the threep to the surface. I was alone literally for the first time in decades, and I busied myself straightening and ordering things. I prepared a meal, and when Rents returned, he was pleased. We discussed our future plans. I asked him what we were going to do. It's hard for one person to operate a ship this big, but we can make do with just the two of us for a short while. There's a naval base one system over, and we can probably draft replacements there. But there's no hurry. We can stay here for a couple weeks. There are things to see below, 
magnificent mountains, beautiful seascapes. After a few days' work on board, rents flew me to the surface in our lander. The first week, we traveled by fast transport through mountains and deserts and forests, enjoying the diverse biomes that the universe creates. Rents talked about beauty and nature and how important they were. The second week, we touched major cities, and I selected dramas and concerts that caught my fancy. I had trouble understanding the complex plots and alien themes that the three preferred. Rents was bored and spent much of his time reading his book. At the end of the week, abruptly, he said we had to return to the ship. I found I was ready. It would be like returning home. As the lander rose back to orbit, Rents showed me the controls and how they worked, how they translated hand and foot motion into flight maneuvers. He let me take them in hand, and I controlled our flight for a few minutes. Once we had docked and tightened the grapples that held the lander tight to our hull, Rents told me what was going to happen next. I was hoping for this. That's why we've been waiting. I sent some cordial messages to the three, reiterating to them that they would be welcome as crew. It usually happens with spacers. They want to go home, but they never really can. A day later, a dozen tripods crowded the narrow passageway, all eager to enter, to re-enter their ship. Their booming voices sounded over each other as they all conveyed their regret for their decision. It just wasn't the same everyone has changed. I thought our pod would all be together. About half have just moved on and no one knows where they went. Some of the pods still live together, but they all have different jobs. Boot is a vehicle operation instructor. Garen manages a belt shop with people from a different pod. Nink sells financial instruments. He tried to sell me life insurance that would someday support my retirement, but once the company found out my occupation, the costs tripled. Nink was very disappointed. And there aren't any jobs. No one wants to hire an astrogation calculator or a jump drive technician. There was a job serving cheap meals, but it would barely cover my own eating expenses. Where would I live? Even for a good job, my pay would only be a fourth of what I earn here. How does anyone live? Then I take it you want to return as our crew. Oh, could we? We admit we've made a mistake. It was nice to visit, but it is impossible to live here. Perhaps we can retire here someday. Yes, yes, yes. Their booming voices competed to drown each other out. Could we? Rents hesitated for a moment, but just for a moment. Certainly. You are the best crew I have ever had. Welcome back. They crowded even closer. Rents educated me about our crew. I had found that once I became accustomed to their three legs down, three arms up, narrow-belted waist physiques, I saw them as people, and in my mind that equated with humans, in some sort of costume. I saw or imagined human minds behind those three-eyed faces, human bodies inside those elastic costumes. One evening alone, Rents talked about who they were. First, he said, their true species name is Threep. It is uncountable. One of them is Threep. Many of them together are three. Tripod is technically a pejorative, although it's been used for so long that they usually don't take offense. They have a six-gender structure. There are gender names, but they really don't matter. 
There's a long evolutionary tail behind it, and even now, it's not totally clear. Imagine a circle with the six genders equally spaced around it. Each gender has two partners, and in mating season, they sit next to each other for hours, and eventually each of them becomes gravid with eggs that hatch after about six months. Then there are miniature ones running around. They all grow up together in a pod, which is their family structure. That's the physical element. Sociologically and psychologically, their genders shape their lives. They, pair isn't the word, six up at adolescence to create a group, a sextet. Someday that six may produce offspring, but that isn't certain. They have allegiance to their pod, a group of several dozen sextets, from which someday will come the next generation. Within a sextet, with one of each gender, each has a variety of roles. Imperial society has influenced them, and they believe in gender equality. But deep down there are leaders, enablers, workers, thinkers, nurturers, and others. I keep mapping their genders to human male and female, and that just doesn't seem to work. But think back to the book club. A good sophantologist with a specialty in three could have predicted how each of them would react to the scarlet letter. They know human genders, but they map them to their own. So born, a sort of male, had a typically male reaction. Truel, a worker and essentially neuter, saw Roger's reaction as a neuter as well. Flal is an enabler. She, it, is always trying to help out the others, explaining, teaching, even stepping in and doing. It's just her nature. You don't have to internalize much of this. Outwardly, they all want to be treated equally. The other important part of their nature is their sensory palps. They have eyes, ears, although not very acute, noses, and a general sense of touch. The palps are for their perception sense. They can sense life, the presence of living things, and some level of emotion and thoughts. It's not psionics. They can't read minds. But they are good at sensing what people think about them. You could call one of them a tripod, and it wouldn't take offense because you have a kind heart. Some drunk in a bar might use the same word as a pejorative, and it would probably start a fight. Or they basically know if the next room is empty. They can sense if there is someone over there or not. Soon after we left Otseku, I was moved to research Rent's activity in the Navy. I was surprised with what I found. It seems that he had understated the events, perhaps to spare me, perhaps to avoid a discussion. The data pack was revelatory, and I brooded over it for much of the day. We went to bed without Rents noticing, and he fell fast asleep. Finally, in the middle of the night, I could stand my inner turmoil no longer. Rents, are you awake? He mumbled something I could not quite hear, and I continued. Rance, we need to talk. His answer told me he was awake, although he still lay there with his back to mine. About what? How could you kill all those people? You have been reading the histories. I looked them up today. Mar, Deus, the others. Those are hard reading. They are. He was silent for a while. Do you know how auto drivers work? 
You mean for ground cars? Or flyers, yes. More or less. There's a computer hooked up into the master grid plus a set of sensors. It takes you where you want to go. What does that bear with me? There's a classic challenge in the auto driver logic. What if there's a crowd ahead, suddenly, unpredictably? Your car will hit it and kill a dozen people. Or it can swerve aside and only kill one. Or just you, the car occupant. From your point of view, do you want your car to decide to kill you rather than a crowd of a dozen? Maybe. Yes, maybe. It, it depends. The people who install that decisionware are the ones who decide who lives and who dies. Someone has to. Canorb is a nice, peaceful world. It doesn't need a Navy to protect it. The nearest current threat is a full sector away, probably the Varger across the Imperial border. Then again, Mar was almost as close. If Mar's parasite had gotten loose 200 years ago, you would never have been born. Canorb would be a dead world along with a thousand other worlds. Maybe not a dead world, but certainly not human. But there must have been a better way. Research, quarantine, some cure. You are confusing reality with escapist Anglic literature. People want stories that give them answers, magic answers, solutions to life's problems. Stories are all about formulating answers to instruct us to live better lives. Mara was a tragedy. The protagonist was the empire itself. The tragic flaw was the nature of the universe. We can't know everything. We can't save every life. We can't make life fair. I listened. My heart ached for those millions who died in terror. I said so to Rents, or to this person who was now Rents. He answered, For every one of those millions, my heart ached, as does yours, for a thousand times as many who would also die if I didn't act. There was more that I did, of course. But at its core, all I did was make a decision, touch a tab, or say a word. Could you do that? Never. It would be just too horrific. That's just the point, isn't it? That if you were in that situation and could save a trillion lives, and more than that, and children to be, you, not just you, but everyone around you would hesitate. In the end, the greatest of tragedies would touch us all because of your fatal flaw. You could not bear the weight of the smaller deed in order to achieve the greater good. You ask how I could kill all those people. The truer question is how could I not? I had not yet fully processed all that he said, but I at least started to understand. I count that night as the beginning of a new time for us. This wasn't Rents. He just looked like him. Exhausted from this conversation and as I drifted off to sleep, tell me your name. I called him Jonathan after that. Sticky made barren. I was exhausted. Why should I even awake? My eyes were closed, but I knew by subtle cues that it was probably in the stadium. I opened them. This section of seating contained but few people, a cross-section of the intelligent species of the Empire, all of them intent on a performance, a traditional drama. 
I had known Trallian Nurst. For most of his life, his creative output was associated with video drama, usually under contract for other producers. In midlife, however, his habit of buying a daily lottery chance uncharacteristically paid off with wealth beyond his greatest imagining. He had the funds to do anything he wanted. He chose to produce his true masterwork, his unique own concept of what drama should do. He spent the next ten years of his life supported by every possible assistance, creating The Eighteen, his series of dramas investigating the nine cardinal emotions and their antonyms, building a series of seemingly unrelated characters and situations into a dramatic double climax of love and hate. Four hundred million credits buys almost anything. In this case, it even bought quality and acclaim. Nurse was a proponent of situational drama, classic stories with strong characters interpreted anew in each production by current actors and directors. Roles are recast by era, by culture, and even by sofont. Each script produces archetypal characters involved in universal situations. Nurse's intent was adaptability to any era, any life pursuit, and any motivation. His classic Minus Seven explores disappointment as experienced by an ambitious central character interacting with a series of counterpoint situations. I had seen it staged against the Volani transitional era as Shugina struggles against the last functional ancient battle machines. The Silean Grand War epoch as adjunct Admiral Tran and his fleet of ironclad ocean ships search the seas for the rogue squadron of the traitor Synaxum. The artisan milieu of Lianma, as disgraced Professor Ralio uses vast computing systems to pursue the ultimate particles of matter. In each, and in many others, the central story remains, interpreted by new actors against new backgrounds to reach new audiences in new ways. Now before me was nursed himself, I recognized him, raptly watching a production of Disappointment, commenting on stage business, on the delivery of lines, on inspired pieces of staging. As the drama drew to a close, I saw him mouth to himself the climactic dying words. In this life, anticipation is never equaled by the reality, perhaps in the next. And then it was over. 238-534, aboard B.B. Kokasi, above Dagudishag Sector, 1640, Lanishuk, A7A8A76-C, Fluid Oceans, High Population, Industrial World. Sticky was not an excellent spacer. He had been up and down the Grank ladder several times, promoted because time had passed, demoted because he overslept or failed an inspection. He was, however, an excellent computer tech. He intuitively understood the workings of the Navy's information systems better than any of the officers, indeed better than anyone on the ship. It was Sticky to whom the other ratings turned when connections failed or new installations balked or old devices slowed. More than once, another rating got the credit and the promotion based on something Sticky did. Yet in all of this, Sticky was content. He enjoyed what he did. He had a continuing parade of devices to puzzle through, install, and confirm as operational. As section officers cycled in, each tried to rehabilitate Sticky as a spacer, soon found that the network suffered, and so learned to leave Sticky alone. Sticky was the butt of good-natured derision, which he ignored or didn't notice. 
It was always good-natured because the network suffered if it wasn't. Today's ribbing was somehow different. Sticky, the captain wants to see you. You're in trouble now. Did you let his link crash? Sticky was immune to their comments and ignored them until the lieutenant touched his shoulder firmly and said, Stand up. Let's see you. Your tunic has a spot. Let's get it changed. The captain wants you on the bridge. It took longer than he expected and the lieutenant was starting to get nervous. Normally, Commander Lament would wait patiently until a break in the routine on the bridge before speaking. Course-keeping for a 200,000-ton behemoth like the Kokasi required the full attention of the pilot consoles, and the captain disliked interruption. In this case, Lament interrupted anyway. Sir, he stepped forward. The captain, irritated, met his eyes. Speak. We have an express from Fleet Command. This was different. Not a flash. Not a coded transmission. An express. A package. A physical package. The captain turned to his executive, You have the bridge, and walked to the exit. A piece of paper? I, sir, from the Emperor. He added redundantly, Himself. The package lay on the table in the wardroom, carefully centered in front of the captain's place, positioned on a neatly folded cloth. The lid was removed, nestled beneath it. Centered in the container, held immobile by tabs, was a single sheet emblazoned with the many-rayed imperial sunburst, inscribed with the Emperor's will and whim, in Anglic and Volani, that Ragla Niffield be henceforth and forever Baron of the Empire. Paper touched by the Emperor himself, his initial inscribed at the bottom. So who is Ragla Neffield? That would be sticky, sir. Petty Officer Ragla Neffield. His incredulity showed. Sticky? Why would the Emperor make Sticky a baron? There was no clear answer. He's made him a baron. He's only a rating. We can't make a petty officer a baron. So commission him. Do whatever it takes. Then Admiral Steen, the Marquis, can knight him. Then, and only then, we hold the investiture. Sticky had never been on the bridge. Even network fixes were performed through access panels. For that matter, he had never actually spoken to the captain, let alone the admiral. He was like a beast in a maze, unsure of what to do, afraid of what lay beyond the blind corners ahead. He nervously felt for his tablet, but resisted the impulse to look at it. The captain returned Sticky's awkward salute, then stepped forward and pointed out a spot for him to stand. At a nod from the captain, a rating began to recite from a screen. The captain is pleased to announce that by virtue of his inherent powers, he hereby presents this commission in the rank of lieutenant in the Imperial Navy, and with it the responsibilities and authorities of an officer who serves the Empire. The captain waited, and finally someone behind him signaled Sticky to salute, which he did. The captain returned the salute, stepped forward, and touched his collar to attach the insignia of lieutenant. They shook hands as well. Commander Lament grabbed Sticky's elbow and herded him off the bridge. Let's get a proper officer's uniform. Make sure the badges are correct, and the service stripes. You have an excess? How many? Lieutenant? Yes, you. You're a lieutenant now. Is your service record correct? Good. I'll be back in an hour for the next ceremony. That left Sticky standing in an anteroom, surrounded by three clerks and a chief petty officer, all fussing with things that he never concerned himself with. What just happened? 
You were just commissioned as an officer in the Emperor's Navy and jumped two more ranks in the blink of an eye. Normally it takes ten years to make lieutenant, and you made it in about ten seconds. Sure, I noticed that. But why? That, sir, is a different question. The bridge has been buzzing about you ever since the fleet courier arrived. There's a rumor that you are the long-lost Corand, suddenly identified by genetic analysis. Could you be the Emperor's brother's long-lost orphaned son? Sticky shook his head. Are you sure? Would you know? Sticky shook his head again, no. In the next hour, the Admiral arrived from the station. He was escorted immediately to the captain's office suite, ushered past the various clerks and ratings, and into the private quarters. Welcome, Your Grace. I apologize for the urgency of our message. I thought, under the circumstances, that we should meet immediately and, certainly, Holm, tell me what's going on. With the Admiral on board, the captain was no longer lord of all. The sooner the Admiral left, the better. The captain told his story in as few words as possible. They had received, out of nowhere, a barony for Petty Officer Ragla Neffield. They couldn't just hand it over. They had immediately promoted him to a suitable officer rank, lieutenant. Now he needed to be knighted. That required the Admiral, as Marquis, the proper proxy hand of the Archduke. Once that was done privately, they could have a proper investiture on the hangar deck. Could the Admiral please oblige? The final step was more elaborate. Officers assembled on the hangar deck. Cutlass armed marines marched forward carrying the sunburst banner of the Imperium to the strains of the Melodie Naval, followed by the Emperor's anthem. By that evening it was finished. The officers gathered in the wardroom for a ceremonial dinner with Sir Ragla, Baron Sima, as guest of honor. The next morning Sticky cleared out his cubicle and took the shuttle to the orbiting starport with his discharge in his pocket and still only a vague idea of where Sima was. The auxiliary data network on the Kokasi went down ten hours later. To Sima Sima is an ancient world settled in the first millennium of starflight by the Volani pioneers as they reached out along the contorted single-jump links of the Volani main. Sima, 26 jumps out, was an attractive world with a pleasant environment and biomes quickly overwhelmed by imported Volani crops and livestock. The fact that there were no indigenes simplified the process, and the colonists soon settled into a comfortable existence. Later development of faster jump drives turned Sima into a backwater, self-sufficient and bypassed by mainstream society. When the First Imperium fell, Sima was assigned to governor by Terra, a naval lieutenant who soon settled in to this world's agricultural routine. The long night had little effect, far fewer visitors and no exports, but Sima's self-sufficiency meant that no one starved and no one really suffered. Some three hundred years ago, the Third Imperium recontacted the world with an invitation to join their interstellar community. With the invitation came vague promises of new markets that never really materialized, but no matter, life continued as before. Twenty years previous, the last of the Terran line of governors, called barons by the new rulers, died. Now, somehow, the bureaucracy at far-off capital had finally decided that Sima needed a representative of the emperor. Sima's government was a tangle of feudal allegiances, a glorified serf system in which citizens owed a natural loyalty and responsibility to the estate of their birth. 
the estate provided basic subsistence, education, and even the skills of a trade. Vast farms trained their citizens in agriculture. Vast ranches trained their citizens in animal husbandry. Everywhere, the talented were given training in whatever skills the community required. Administration, equipment repair, peace enforcement, service industries. At the top of each estate stands a local noble, the lord, the holder, the keeper, the master, the squire, the director, the manager, the chief. 238-534, Lenishuk Highport above, Dagudishag Sector, 1640, Lenishuk, A7, A8, A7, 6-C, Fluid Oceans, High Population, Industrial World. Sticky found that there were two Simas. One was only a few jumps away, but the numbers didn't correspond. The other Sima, according to Sticky's trip planner, was in Lishan Sector, 75 parsecs, almost a year away. He had a star pass that put him on routine jump liners when they had space available. The databank told him little else, but then again any news of the place would be at least a year old anyway. Sticky disliked attention. He traveled across a whole sector, a year on long liners flying the main routes, and then tramps to the backwaters. His government-issued travel vouchers were good for middle passage. If he had revealed his noble title, the steward would surely have upgraded him to high passage, luxury class with fine cuisine and lots of attention. He was content to stay in his stateroom, eat meals and snacks from the machines, watch stories on his tablet, fiddle with technological trinkets he bought along the way, and remain anonymous. 193-535, Lishan Sector 0315, SEMA, D758757-6, Agricultural World. Sticky processed in his head the codes defining the world. A medium-sized planet with a thin atmosphere, the odd third digit said no breathing filters were necessary, and vast oceans that created climates hospitable to human-preferred crops. Perhaps 30 million citizens lived under a feudal government structure, not quite serfs, not quite free, with a more or less average enforcement presence. Local technology was idyllic. People usually spoke to each other without computer assistance. That would take some getting used to. Now the moment of truth had arrived. The hybrid cargo and passenger ship had carried him the last parsec to Sima and unloaded him at the customs desk. He knew enough to tip the ship's steward for his courtesy and attention. It was probably low, but Sticky was concerned about his current balance. He was not yet clear on how this all worked. He cleared customs without incident, found a reasonable hotel room, and settled in. Sticky was a product of his particular social class. His rudimentary education focused on being a good citizen. Media emphasized patriotism and social cooperation. Entertainments provided fairy tale adventures with little relationship to reality. Consequently, he had an unrealistic understanding of the nobility. He believed in the platitudes of honor and responsibility that were so often spoken but not respected, and he subconsciously expected that most of his duties would be dramatic affirmations of those high principles. He hadn't a clue of what to do. Sticky had put off even thinking about this next step but he knew that he owed his benefactor a debt that he had to repay. He wrote a short note, fished out the wafer from his kit, and held it next to the jack at the base of his skull.
194-535, Lishan Sector 0315, SEMA, D758757-6, Agricultural World. I awoke seated, my eyes closed, to relative silence and slight disorientation. After a moment I spoke. Who here is senior? And heard only silence. I opened my eyes to a hotel room, before me a desk and a sheet of handwritten text. Agent Jameson, almost a year ago I was plucked from my comfortable consul cubicle and in the course of a day promoted to lieutenant, knighted, raised to baron, mustered out of the navy, and sent on my way to where I am now, SEMA, in Lucian sector. This, my first day here, and I have no idea what to do. But I remember your words as if they were spoken yesterday. I have arrived at my new job, and I have used the wafer you gave me. My life is in your hands. Please guard it as if it were your own. Respectfully, Sticky, Ragla Niffield. I now had perhaps four weeks before I evaporated. It was time to get started. To the clerk at the hotel desk, how do I get to the starport? You are here, sir. The terminal is down the covered mall, with ticketing to the left and arrivals to the right. Information systems? We have guidebooks for sale at the gift shop. The Harvest Festival begins tomorrow. There is a data net in the terminal. I thanked him and started out. Data net seemed the best way to gather information until the Traveler's Aid Society kiosk caught my eye. Excuse me, can I ask a few questions? Certainly, we are here to help. We had a wide-ranging discussion. I then returned to my room, gathered up my single piece of luggage, and set out. I called a common transport and asked for the Imperial Bank. When we arrived, I paid my fare, adding a generous 100-credit tip, and instructed him to deliver my valise to the manor house. Visiting the bank first seemed to make sense. There was only one. I opened two accounts, one in the name of Niffield, and one in the name of Bland. The bank officer fussed over me, delighted to be in the presence of someone so favored by the emperor. My papers carried information codes and encryption markers. They could be counterfeited, but the penalties were severe enough to deter most. Your Grace, we are so pleased that you have arrived. The barony has been vacant for more than a decade, and we all feel the lack. Sir Jordan has shouldered the burden admirably but there are decisions that are beyond his charter. As you must know, the barony carries with it certain stipends and allowances. First, there is the manor itself, certainly suitable for your daily living. It has an attached ceremonial court for receptions and audiences. Second, the baronial fiefs have been well managed since their reversion to the throne. You may, of course, assert your selection of the previous fiefs, or you may select from the unallocated lands. Third, there are several traditional directorships in local corporations, the energy utility, the communications network, the land registry. They have a standing invitation for you to join their oversight and policy structures, with the associated stipends, of course. Fourth, the barony, now manifest in your person, stands at the head of our system of governance, primarily as the ultimate court of appeal. There is a backlog of decisions that lie on your desk waiting to be made. You may delegate the office, but the last baron conducted the audiences himself. The court has lain fallow since his death. Fifth, 
the Marquis has extended his compliments for your health and welfare, and offers his personal concern that you be comfortable and well advised in your new position. He especially asks that you visit him on Priden at your earliest convenience. Sixth, you have graced our establishment with accounts. We sincerely hope that you will find our services more than satisfactory. The manor house is the traditional residence of the baron, as before him the second empire lieutenant, and as before that the first empire iduma. Refurbished and rehabilitated countless times, it retained the classic facade of early first empire corbels, although doubtless the interior was more or less modern. The center of the city was a three-kilometer-long pedestrian plaza, traditionally filled with farmers' stalls on market days, vast and empty otherwise. Today, the first signs of the coming harvest festival were being erected, long tables, cooking facilities, and a few entertainment stages. The manor house occupied the south edge, a walled compound with a central structure of windows and balconies. I walked directly to the main doors and entered without knocking. Rule one applies in all aspects of life. Inside was a reception hall lined with columns supporting a tall ceiling. In the distance was a man dealing with papers at a desk. I walked directly to him. He spoke as I approached. We are not open to the public. Who's in charge today? Is that you? Rule one. No, I am Inglis, the house steward. The estate manager is away for the morning. Come back this afternoon. Skip rule two for the moment. You will do. My bag was delivered earlier today. Have it carried to the master apartment. Then call the estate manager and tell him to return immediately. Notify the staff to assemble for a meeting precisely at 11. Rule 3. You make impossible demands. We are not a hotel. No, you are not. You are a residence for the master. I am the master. I expect competent and immediate service. Go. A second person appeared. You. Conduct me to the master apartment. Rule 4. Rule 5 would follow at the meeting. I didn't expect to invoke Rule 2, but one can never tell. The master apartment was a suite of six rooms, including two bedrooms, a large living area with a balcony on the plaza, a dining area, an unused kitchen, and an office, apparently in use by the manager. Within an hour, the estate manager entered, accompanied by two footmen, without knocking. He began with firmness. Who are you to walk into this manor? I stood and faced him with equal firmness. I imagined Sticky, if he had gotten here, stammering an explanation and pleading for an examination of his legitimacy papers. That would never do. You violate basic etiquette. Begin again. My residence is never entered without knocking. I am addressed as Sir in ordinary conversation, although your grace is equally acceptable. Exit and begin again. He started to waver. May I ask, sir, your name? To which I pressed the point. Exit, knock, and begin again. The two footmen observed with careful neutrality. They depended on the manager for their positions, but were not about to show any initiative. Should they defer? Should they subdue me? The rational choice was no action. They were rational. The manager was momentarily paralyzed with a tension between anger and fear. Fear one. He signaled the footman to retreat and followed them out. There came a knock at the door, and I answered, Enter. Welcome to the manor, sir. I am Arand, the estate manager. 
How may I serve you? Thank you, Arand. This transition is tedious, and I shall say this but once. I am Baron Sir Ragla Neffield, late of the Imperial Navy, and sent to this world as the representative of the Emperor himself. You may convey this information to the staff. I prefer, for the moment, caffeinated tea as my customary beverage. I rise at seven and begin work at eight. Please arrange for all locks to be changed and for two master keys, one for you and one for me. I shall speak to the assembled staff at eleven. Ensure that all are present. I shall review the house accounts the day after tomorrow. If there are shortages, we shall arrange suitable repayments without repercussions, provided I am properly notified. After the accounting and inspections, if I am satisfied, I shall retain you. If not, you may expect duties in the laundry. You may go. Under the local feudal system, the entire staff, from cleaners to manager, was bound by oaths of fealty to the master of the house, or in his absence, to the house itself. At eleven I reviewed the assembled staff of about twenty, and made them wait for the midday meal until after I had personally interviewed each and insisted on an affirmation of each fealty oath. Some had never known a personal master, having come into service after the previous baron's passing. I made notes about a better reallocation of resources, more people to the kitchen, stronger men in security, some with deficient attitudes to the laundry or the garden. I spoke with Arand last. He recited the oath, Nin Mak Memar Magashkala, Lord, I pledge my loyal labor, to which I replied the ritual Sagan Memar Ashur Dagash, Servant, I pledge my protection. Not only was such oaths binding, they provided each individual a place in society. We exchanged oaths as much for them as for me. Finally, I could begin in earnest. I had limited time. 218-535, Lishan Sector, 0315, Sima, D-758-757-6, Agricultural World. I was annotating the day's diary, trying to fully record the decisions and assignments I had made during the day when Inglis knocked and entered. Sir, the Marquis yacht is in orbit. He sends his compliments and requests that you join him for dinner. He is sending a boat. Traffic control had sent me a courtesy alert when his ship arrived in system some ten hours ago. His own message had followed a few hours later. Now came the formal invitation. This was the Marquis Pryden, lord of a nearby world with a hundred times our population, but a very similar surf system. My years of bureaucratic experience gave me an insight. He, the superior in status and rank, had traveled a week in jump to visit me. Given travel times, he couldn't have known about my abrupt arrival on Sima more than two weeks ago. He had packed up and come here with, at most, seven days' notice. He had the superior status, but I was important enough for him to cancel schedules and come visit me. I thought I knew what drove him. The boat arrived less than an hour later, setting down, in violation of basic traffic control regulations, in the plaza outside the manor. Then again, there were exceptions built into the regulations where the nobility was concerned. I stepped out a minute later, followed by Inglis carrying an insulated food basket. I was met at the access stair by a gray and red liveried footman who braced in greeting and courteously escorted me aboard. 
Inglis handed over the basket, which was secured at a compartment without question. I was seated and strapped in, and we departed, straight up. The ascent took a dozen minutes, and we were soon joined with the Marquis Yacht, a large angular ship with bulging eye-like observation domes forward and powerful thruster tubes aft. I straightened my tunic, ran my hand through my hair, and stepped out onto the reception deck. The Marquis himself stood waiting to greet me. He extended his hand and spoke my name. Sir Ragla, I am so pleased to meet the latest addition to our small circle. Welcome to Lishan. He had good intelligence. He knew who I was, that I was a newcomer to the sector. We would see, over the evening, what else he knew. I turned to the footman and asked that he deliver the food basket to the cook. I then returned my full attention to my host. We strode the length of the reception deck, perhaps twenty meters, to one of the bulging-eye observation domes. Below us, filling half of our view, lay Sima in all its sunlit glow, an expanse of blue-green sea, broken only by my continent, a slender green snake spiraling its way twice around the globe. We made small talk. He complimented my fief. I inquired as to his health. We spoke about the economy, trade, politics, trends in society. We sparred with each other, gently feeling out what the other believed, revealing some, but not too much. He was a conservative. He identified with the sparkles, traditionalists concerned with frustrating the agents of change. I knew firsthand that was impossible, but I kept my silence on that particular issue. He cared deeply about his own fiefs scattered about the sector and about its many populations, whether they answered directly to him or not. I conveyed a parallel conservatism with perhaps a tinge of concern for indigene rights. A footman approached, waiting a decent distance away. When the Marquis looked at him, he announced that dinner was served. We moved to a formal table set in the center of the deck. It would be just the two of us, seated across from each other, dining on delicacies from several worlds, some sort of soup served cold, some sort of deep fish from his own priden, even a purple leafy concoction served with a tangy glaze. At one point, I had a terrible vision of Sticky handling this situation himself, perhaps not knowing which eating utensil to use, what topic of conversation to pursue, what words not to say. I made a mental note for the next day's diary entry, more specific instruction in etiquette and interactions. But no matter, at the moment, I actually enjoyed the conversation. As the main course ended, Your Grace, I took the liberty of bringing along some sugar-fungy pie to complete the meal. I do hope you do not mind. He did not. His chef probably did, but knew enough not to object to the ways of the nobility. I asked the server to bring the dessert. We all agreed that it was delicious. The object of our meeting had been hanging over us all evening. This was important to the Marquis, important enough that he did not want to alienate me. I broached the subject myself. Your Grace, there is a matter that I feel we must discuss, and I am so grateful that you and I have the opportunity to meet. He set down his food implement and gave me his full attention. I am humbled by the responsibilities that the Emperor has given me. I have a lot to learn and a lot to do, 
and I expect to throw myself into it wholeheartedly. One of these responsibilities is to express my own opinions in the moot. Alas, as we well know, capital is half a year away, and I cannot justify being absent from my fiefs for so long a time. Some day I hope that I can make the journey and cast my vote on some important matter. But for now, it is simply impossible. I know that you are more involved in the affairs of government, that you have structures in place that can tolerate your absence. My question is this. Would you consent, for the time being, to accept my proxy and cast my vote as you see fit when you are present at the moot? I would be flattered with such a responsibility. He was more than flattered. This was exactly what he wanted. For reasons I did not clearly understand, my single vote was important to him. Was it because he did not want it in anyone else's hands? Did his status with the Count or the Duke, which one I did not yet know, depend on being able to deliver every proxy that became available? Was there some obscure issue that could be tipped by my single vote? Then I thank you sincerely. An uncast vote would be to me a burden, and you have lifted it from my heart. Now came the hard part, the negotiation of terms. I proposed. As to terms, I think the standard clauses should apply. I cannot bind my heirs, nor can you yours, so our agreement will end with my death, or your death, or with the death of the sovereign. Certainly, he was pleased. Standard terms make for better understandings. And the standard clause that, should you visit the moot, the proxy is suspended by your actual presence. Oh, wonderful, I contributed enthusiastically. He smiled cynically at my sophomoreish delight. I continued. You may, of course, further assign my proxy to others as needed. I trust your judgment in the matter. And finally, I believe that there is typically an annual stipend attached. To this he sat impassive. The fact that he had come to me reflected the value he placed on my proxy. In ordinary transactions it was worth perhaps a hundred thousand credits per year. He had spent that much just coming to visit me. My proxy was a small but integral part of the political favor exchanging that was the central focus of the moot. In his hands, it had value as political capital and ultimately as real capital. If my proxy went elsewhere, it counted against him and his ambitions. I let the silence linger just long enough that he understood that I understood its value, notwithstanding my supposedly unsophisticated ways. Then I spoke. I think that we should waive the stipend. I could see that he had been holding his breath, and now released it. I thank you for your confidence. I will have the agreement codified for our mutual assent. The tension was broken. He had what he wanted, and it made him happy. But I also had what I wanted. As much as possible, I had recruited the Marquis as my, or Ragla's, political friend. It would take great provocation for the Marquis to work against Ragla's interests, although I knew that political winds could blow in any direction. I had three days left before oblivion. 222-535, Lesion Sector, 0315, SEMA, E758-757-6, Agricultural World. Sir Ragla, Baron SEMA, awoke disoriented. Various muscles ached from unaccustomed use. 
He stepped out of bed and moved to the fresher, stuck to the mirror with a sheet of paper filled with text. His message was simple. Now is thirty days later. You will find that a variety of arrangements and agreements have been made, all to your benefit. The papers are carefully arrayed in the dining room. The wafer now resided safely in the vault. To use it again would be dangerous. Guard it, and if you find that its use by you has been to your benefit, arrange for it to be used with each of your sons when they reach maturity. Over the next several days, Sir Ragla found that he had occupied the manor house of Baron Sima and established suitable arrangements for basic necessities of living. The estate manager was Arand, and the chief steward was Inglis. Both understood their roles and could be trusted. Accepted the position of Baron Sima and suitably greeted and entertained the local dignitaries and authorities. Instituted a magistrate system that vetted disputes requiring his attention. Carefully documented appeals would be presented to him with well-reasoned arguments from both sides and an array of options with disclosed consequences. Accepted some of the existing baronial fiefs and rejected others with a resulting annual income that paid recurring expenses and provided a surplus consistent with a comfortable lifestyle. Ordered a high-end household computer system comparable to the naval consoles he was used to. Arranged for a virtual tutorial on etiquette and protocol to help understand this particular position better. Scheduled a visit by the Marquis' daughter, Aya, for holiday at year-end some three months hence. There was a knock on the door, followed by a servant bringing tea. Anna Plant Lagash Report 3 Video image of an older human female with dark hair flecked with gray and cut in the short style preferred by spacer women. There is a touch of wrinkle at the eyes, which unwaveringly engage the camera lens. She speaks with firmness and a meticulous standard Anglic pronunciation. Date stamp 119-537, Report 3. I became a student. When rents made me astrogator, I thought that meant that I would be entering data on one console and reading the results on another. Indeed, that is what I did under Truel's instructions for the first year. I initially failed to understand that my craft would ask more of me. We jumped every two weeks. After a year, I was competent to undertake the process by myself. Jonathan and Bourne would confer over a star chart and select our next destination. Thereafter, I handled the details. I would choose where in the system we would arrive, whether we would visit the main world, or refuel at the gas giant, or perhaps in an ice world in the Oort. I evaluated contingencies. I input the data and review the output. I separately confirm the calculations on another console. A complete manual confirmation would have been impossible, but I at least made sure I had not transposed digits or misread important facts. I enjoyed the process. I tracked performance data and tried to improve with each new effort. Our time and jump steadily improved to narrowly bracket the optimum 168 hours. Our breakouts became nearer and nearer their intended locations. When we experienced an anomaly, 
I tracked down the reason, and in future I accounted for it. After three years, I was participating in the course selection process. After four years as an astrogator, and after my hundredth jump calculation, Bourne and Jonathan sat down with me to discuss my work. In this situation, my role was subordinate employee being evaluated by superiors, and I was nervous. Was there something I was consistently doing wrong, or improperly, or ineptly? I wanted to be well thought of. I dreaded the idea that I might not be. Bourne began in his ever-booming voice. Anna, you have reached an important evaluation point in your progress as an astrogator. You have learned well, as well as we can expect. What did that qualification mean, I thought. But astrogation is more than calculations and computations. It is more even than thoughtful planning of routes and course lines. There is a magic quality. Jonathan interjected a correction. Mystical. Ah, yes, I always get those two words confused. Mystical quality to truly excellent astrogation, a disciplined understanding of jump space itself. I am pleased that Jonathan chose you to learn this science. You've done well, very well. It is time for you to take the next step in your training. Jonathan took over the narrative. Jump space is inherently strange, as you already know from your calculations and formulae. It is out there beyond our hull churning and clawing at the jump field. It is alien physics that none of us truly understand. We keep the shutters closed and the viewports opaque because they say looking at it can drive men mad. Actually, madness is relative. For a few, seeing jump space makes them catatonic. For others, it gives them headaches or eye strain or fascination trance. Some can't see it. They only see gray. Some see it and never travel again. Every good astrogator has to at least confront jump space once in his or her life. Maybe that is enough. Or maybe it carries you to a higher level of understanding. This scared me. I enjoyed astrogation, but I was uncertain that I wanted to sacrifice my sanity for it. What if it made me crazy? Would Jonathan care for me the way I had for rents? Was I ready for my life to end? Would it end? Are you ready? I was frozen. I was not ready. I wanted to think about it, to research my options. I heard my voice say, Yes, and wondered how that happened. I was in a daze as Jonathan led me by the hand to a small turret with its observation bubble opaque. Where had Jonathan learned all this? How did he know this mystical secret? Here's a display panel with a feed from outside the hull. He touched tabs and made adjustments. This is what the lenses see in the visible spectrum. It was a mottled gray. I felt fine. This would be all right. I would survive. And this is the false color across a variety of wavelengths. It was the same. It is important that you see this first. The lenses are dumb, unconscious, unthinking. He called up a short animation. Do you remember the two-slit demonstration about interference patterns and particles? I had a vague memory of the strangeness of quantum effects. I tried to express it. Shine photons through two slits and they interfere with each other on the other side. 
cover one slit and they don't. Shine them just one at a time and they still interfere. Look to see which slit the photon went through and they don't interfere. Something about the photon knows it is being observed. That's fairly good for a literature teacher. Nurse uses it as a metaphor for knowledge. Ah, then you have learned well. Seeing jump space is a quantum effect. What imagers and lenses see is one thing. What consciousnesses see is another. Photographs, images, sensors, lenses, displays all produce a near-uniform gray image. Consciousness sees something else. More than that, when several consciousnesses see the same view, they all see the same average. When only one consciousness sees it, it is unique. I don't understand. No one does. You don't understand before you see it. After, you might understand a little. Don't worry. The driving men mad thing is mostly for those caught totally unawares. Are you ready? As ready as I will ever be. The anticipation was overwhelming. Jonathan D. opaqued the dome. I saw roiling currents of thick gray smoke lined with thin streaks of yellow and blue. Every few seconds, it was overlaid with an intense pointillism of stark white in random currents. Jonathan continued, See? You're still sane. We're almost there. This isn't it? Not quite. This is an average of what you and I are seeing. If there were ten of us, it would be a muddy gray average of ten different consciousnesses. See the brief flashes? I can make them longer. How? When I close my eyes, then only your consciousness sees it. The murky gray was replaced by a cascade of intense points of light in colors across the spectrum, infinitely small, yet terribly bright. What are those? We don't know. Individual packets of photons escaping from jump space through our protective fields? Notice the murky gray is still there behind all the sparks. We sat there for hours as I tried to make sense of what I was seeing. Were those sparks stars or worlds or ships? Jonathan said not, but I still wondered. I made him squeeze his eyes shut or blink rapidly or stare intently. I tried to see shapes in the murk and did, if only in my imagination. At long last, I grew tired, and Jonathan roused me to return to our quarters. I barely noticed that Bourne had been waiting outside the turret for the whole time. He was relieved that I was still well. That night, my dreams were filled with strange sparks that called my name. After five years, I made the course choices alone and presented them for a perfunctory approval. In the middle of year eight, Bourne and Jonathan brought me a challenge. These are the logs of Talon. Jonathan pointed at an interactive screen with multiple pages of text, star charts, position tracks, and synopses. We've been paralleling their course to Bonature, but since they were jump five and we are only jump three, we don't usually hit the same worlds. We are now approaching the feature they called the Gulf. It's trivial as astrography goes, but it is nevertheless a problem for us. Bourne took over, touching panels with those three-fingered hands. 
The gulf is generally 10 parsecs across. It extends the full width of this sector and, from the looks of it, the neighboring sectors as well. The narrowest point is here, he pointed, at about five parsecs. Talon barely noticed it. I was engaged already. But we are jump three. It's impassable. Indeed, said Jonathan. Bourne continued. There's a textbook answer for explorers. Jump out one. Leave what fuel you have except for just enough to get back. Do it again and again and again. Do the same another parsec out until finally you have a cache of fuel there. Finally, go to that cache, fuel up completely, and go the last three parsecs. So Anna set that up. It was like a homework assignment or maybe a final exam. I enjoyed it. On the one hand, this was a tedious exercise. On the other, it was a challenge. Shuttling back and forth was unsatisfying. I wanted to be moving toward our destination. It took us 17 weeks, and we were ready to make the big jump to the far side of the gulf. The computer had identified our base system with a string of random numbers and issued it a nonsense name, Remio. I named the blank parsecs ahead of us. One, two, three, and four. The computer had arbitrarily named the far side of the gulf Huis. Who knows what clever logic was instilled in it years before. We broke out in two a little farther out than I wanted, and so Troon piloted us to our cache, a cluster of several glistening sacks. Bourne shouted even louder than normal, There's something out there! The other three were booming at each other, their strange perception palps fluttering more than usual. The little fingers kept bending in different directions, twisting sideways, up, down. Flool and Dream made their way to the transpects, but others simply stepped closer to the opaque hull. Jonathan called for quiet. Froon, Bork, to your turrets. Born, describe what you see. A big cluster, almost solid, long, slow behind the sacks. Several more over here, one arm pointed toward our bow, in a cluster. Troon? They scattered when we broke out, I conjecture in response to our energy shed. The timing was right. They are lurking just at the limit of my senses. Flank. Their ships are almost invisible to the sensors. That makes them light elements. Non-metals. Plastics, perhaps. Anyone else? Mool spoke. How can they move? There's no metal, no magnetics, no gravetics. No reaction mass. Jonathan asked more questions, gathered more data, assembled it on a temporary screen with attached notes. After some minutes, he gave orders to get the fuel into our tanks. We jumped for Huis within an hour. Jonathan called us all together to share his conclusions. These things are part of what they call false knowledge. Strange reports that spacers make, or that they don't make, because the officers back home make them visit the counselor or take pills and tell them not to talk about it. These ships roam deep space. No one knows what their crews are like. There is a good chance they are automatons. Sometimes they ram ships. Sometimes they nudge stranded ships toward ice asteroids. He went on to show us enhanced images of long matte black raindrops with a ring of missile launcher tubes forward and a few small fins aft. He showed an image of our ship, 
80 meters long and made comparisons. The biggest of the black ships was twice our length. There was one about as big as us and several more in half, quarter, and even eighth sizes. Those smallest are probably small craft, pinnaces, or gigs, or fighters. The three commented that they had sensed only one life in the little ones. The biggest had been filled with many crew. Vorn asked the big question, Are they dangerous? Jonathan spoke authoritatively. All life is dangerous. Our ship at times reminded me of the arcology. We were isolated, protected even, from the outside world, independent of everyone and everything beyond the protection of our hull. But there was a difference. We lived almost as a family. Jonathan and the three, and of course I, had responsibilities in making the ship function. We interacted on professional and social and even personal levels. Before, I had been waiting to die. Our ship was our world. We all were kept busy by simple procedures that maintained the quality of our environment and ship performance. Crew members pursued advancement in their skills. It was an expected part of their daily work. They cross-trained to replace or supplement their comrades in the event of injury, sickness, or sudden catastrophe. Devices and installations required periodic checks and preventive maintenance. Our book club became an important part of our routine. I made a practice of awarding a silver sunburst sticker to the best plot analysis and a gold for the best character analysis. The Threep and Jonathan displayed them with pride. Born and Flink paired. I learned that despite the threefold symmetry of their physiques and mating structure, some of them formed paired friendships for companionship and mutual support. We repositioned various room panels to accommodate their living together. Within a year, Flaw and Dean were also paired, and then Troon and Froon. The others were apparently content to continue their lives as before.